is Reggie. My name is Chris. And this is Weird Comics History episode number 27, where we bring you some weird comics history sporadically on Tuesdays, usually, <laughs> sometimes. But yeah. in the next few weeks, we will. You can find us uh, Sundays uh, for Cosmic Treadmill on chrisandreggie.podbean.com. And pick us up from iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and other podcast aggregators. We're calling mm-hmm. this one, this is going to be a three-part episode. This is part one, Exploring the Mysteries of Marvelment. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I want to say at the top of the show, Chris has specifically poured a lot of his time and effort into this. I think, <laughs> I think that after doing this three-part series, you, you have a de facto law degree. I think so. So he, that that's good. So that that came out of it. That's positive. But uh, yeah, this is this is a crazy story, folks. I'm sure uh, some of you know some of it. Maybe some of you know a lot of it. But I bet that none of you know all of it. And after listening to these episodes, you will definitely know everything you ever wanted to know, and some stuff you probably didn't and care more. about. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, let's dive right in, Chris. Yeah, this is uh, this episode's actually over a year in the making. We yep. <laughs> we opened this one up a long time ago. Uh, now, but before we do get to meet Marvel Man, we're going to have to ask a question because not only is his relative uh, recent history mangled, his very origins are as oh, well, yeah. yep. and they stem from a fellow by the name of Captain Marvel. This is uh, the Big Red Cheese, the character created by Bill Parker and C.C. Beck for Fawcett Comics in 1939. He'd make his first appearance in Wiz Comics number 2, that's February 1940 cover date. Now, Captain Marvel was pretty obviously created in response to the popularity of national periodical publications, slash DC Comics character Superman, who made his debut in Action Comics number 1, that's June 1938 cover date. Now, Fawcett's character was an instant hit, and on many occasions, even outsold Superman, reportedly at a clip of over a million copies per week. Now, Captain Marvel had something that Superman did not. He had a child as an alter ego. He would exchange places with Captain Marvel by uttering the word Shazam. Shazam is an acronym of six immortal elders. That's Solomon, Hercules, Atlas, Zeus, Achilles, and Mercury. Right, and if you ever forgot that by reading a comic, they would reiterate it every time. Every time. Uh, they would always have the, the, you know, the letters. The comic. statues yeah, exactly. and stuff, yeah. Uh, also, that alter ego, Billy Batson, narrated all of his adventures. It was as though he was telling the readers a story, making them feel like they were part of his adventure. Speaking of his adventures, rather than having his cast filled with ordinary office workers, Captain Marvel was surrounded by the colorful Marvel family. There was his sister Mary would become Mary Marvel, and their friend Freddie Freeman would become Captain Marvel Jr. I don't remember the exact circumstance around Captain Marvel Jr., but I know that Hmm. Mary was able to become Mary Marvel simply because she was his brother. That was it. That was fine. Any any relative from then on had uh, the ability. From there, the Marvel family would grow to include Uncle Marvel and Hoppy the Marvel Bunny. Silly associates would take part too, such as the Talking Tiger, Talkie Tawny. Who had a kind of a British accent. From 1941 on, Fawcett found themselves constantly battling National in court. National took Fawcett to court on claims of copyright infringement to protect their Superman character. They felt the characters were too similar, which is something we could probably discuss and debate, and this was not their only lawsuit of that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at this point, the trial's over a half century old, so the case is quite closed. Yes, uh, we're going to now... Discuss uh, one of our old friends here, Dr. Frederick Wortham. Uh, By the mid-1950s, the comics industry wasn't at its healthiest. 
Fawcett in light of their mounting legal bills and the Wortham uh, Kefauver one-two punch threw in the towel in 1953. Now you can hear all about that in the very in the first five episodes of Weird Comics History, available in the archives. Now the settlement of the Fawcett National deal is uh, twofold. First one is Fawcett must pay National. $400,000, which is $3,677,052.63 in today's dollars. Uh, two, Fawcett must retire Captain Marvel. And they did. Cap's final Golden Age appearance was in The Marvel Family number 89, cover dated January 1954. Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I know the industry was uh, having trouble around this time, but I got to think that payoff was it. Yeah, uh, that was the nail in the coffin. They, <laughs> Absolutely. they shut down. Now let's talk about L. Miller and Son Limited. While comics waned during the 1950s in the United States, they flourished in England. Captain Marvel was a top seller for publisher Len Miller, who had the British license to reprint the stories. As sales soared, Miller received word from Fawcett that they had agreed to retire the character and series. So then, who is Marvelman? Well. In or Marvel Man, I guess I'm I'm saying it like he uh, grew up in the like it's his last name. Yeah. <laughs> Who is Hank Marvelman? No, it's Marvel Man. Uh, in light of the in light of Fawcett pulling the plug on Captain Marvel, Len Miller called upon Mick Anglo and his Growers, his Gower Street Studios, to create a Captain Marvel doppelganger, and they called him Marvel Man, a blonde British fella called Michael Moran, who wouldn't say Shazam, but instead would say Kimota with a K which is atomic backwards, uh, phonetically, that is. Uh, although, like, it, which made sense, because if they spelled it correctly, we would have been saying Simota, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, oddly enough, at least in the case of litigation, which brings us here, Marvel Man's costume is actually more reminiscent of Superman's and Captain Marvel's. Same color scheme, though missing the cape. Uh, perhaps worth mentioning, Marvel Man's alter ego worked for a newspaper called The Daily Bugle. This, is, hey. this predated Spider-Man by nearly a decade. Now, in the December 23rd, 1953 editions of both Captain Marvel and Captain Marvel Jr. comics in Britain, this is edition 19 for both, it was announced that the characters would be retiring, but would be replaced by totally, uh, by new, totally not derivative heroes. Right. <laughs> now, Captain Marvel 23's logo is altered to read The Captain Marvel Man, and uh, issue 24 was uh, clunkily altered to read Captain Marvel hyphen The Marvel Man. Uh, issue 25 would be the first without the big red cheese anywhere in sight and would officially change its title to Marvel Man. You know, I'd, I'd, uh, lo I'd love to see the paste-ups of issue 23 and 24. I'm sure it's just like <laughs> someone just scrawled the and just like oh, it's, slapped it. Yeah. <laughs> we will include some of those images on, on the blog. It's, uh, oh, it's, it's very, very clunky. <laughs> uh, now, Captain Marvel Jr. number 23's logo remained the same. However, a white bar was included at the bottom of the cover with text that read, The Young Marvel Man. Uh, issue 24 moved The Young Marvel Man to the top of the cover. Uh, just like Marvel Man, Young Marvel Man would take over the title of the mag with issue number 25. Now, before we go further into the Marvel Man story, let's go ahead and meet the man who made Marvel Man, Mick Anglo. Really, Maurice Anglowitz, born June 19, 1916, in Bow, London, England. He received his art education at the Central Foundation Boys School and John Cass School of Art, later known as the London Guildhall University, both in London. Sir John Cass was a 17th, 18th century philanthropist who founded the, his first school in 1709. Uh, Post-graduation, Mick Anglo began freelancing in fashion and commercial art. He remained in the field until 1939. 
1942, he entered the National Service, where he drew cartoons for SEAC, S-E-A-C, the official army newspaper for the Southeast Asia Command. SEAC was the body set up to be in command of all Allied operations in the Southeast Asian theater during World War II. The following year, he would contribute cartoons to newspapers in Singapore. After completing his national service, he began writing novels for the uh, Martin and Reed Publishing House. Using the pen name Johnny Decker, Anglo would produce several pulp novels, most of which had an and in the title. <laughs> We're going to read a few of them here for you. We got Lugas and Lawsony, Pinballs and Pinups, Gowns and Gunzels. I think that's my favorite one. Rods, yes, sure. Rods and Redheads is another good one. <laughs> my Gun Speaks for Me and Muscles for Hire, which sounds like a double feature in fairness, I would say. <laughs> also, Nuts to Nylons. <laughs> I think I want to read these more than Marvel Man at this point. Yes. Uh, and the most normal-sounding, East Side Homicide. Uh, while writing, he would also contribute to comic strips to publishers, John Matthew Rayburn and A. Solway. Around 1948, Martin and Reed offered Anglo a gig working on their own comics line. He would edit, write, and draw Western, adventure, and science fiction strips. Also, in the same year, Anglo would create Wonder Man, not that one, for Paget Publications, or Paget, I'm not sure. Hmm. Wonder Man, real name was Captain John Justice. <laughs> which is, so which one's the code name? Really, right? I, you know, <laughs> he would appear in 24 issues between 1948 and 1951 for Paget. During the early 1950s, Anglo would keep busy in comics. He did Captain Valiant for Arnold Miller's Arnold Book Company. ABC. Hmm, ABC. Very nice. Uh, <laughs> and Space Commando Comics for L. Miller and Son. In 1954, Anglo would form the Gower Street Studios. He incorporated on, Oct on August 21st of that year, and his staff included British, British artist Don Lawrence, who has been cited as an inspiration to Brian Boland, Dave Gibbons, and Chris Weston, Bob Monkhouse, who's a comedian who would go on to host uh, Hollywood Squares in Britain, which is Celebrity Squares for ITV. Uh, Dennis Gifford, comics historian, uh, a radio and television personality, and for a time, the owner of the world's largest collection of British comics. Also, Ron Embleton, who went on to work on the Mickey Mouse Weekly magazine, and George Stokes, uh, creator of the British Western newspaper strip, West Slade. Uh, Anglo says, I employed a pretty large staff of freelancers, scriptwriters, and artists. Most of the artists had just come back, come out of the forces, and were looking for something to do. Uh, Gower Street Studios would create British comic books from 1954 through 1963, and during that time, they were tasked with creating Marvel Man. Speaking of which... Now, Marvel Man proved to be just as successful as his predecessor, that would be Captain Marvel. He was embraced by the British youth, who didn't seem to mind Captain Marvel's disappearance. <laughs> In addition to aping the main man, Anglo and company also created their own version of the Marvel family. Captain Marvel Jr., Freddie Freeman, would be replaced with the young Marvel Man, otherwise known as Dickie Dauntless. Mm -hmm. Mary Marvel was replaced not by another girl, but with a boy. That's the British way. The her character was replaced by Kid Marvel Man, Johnny Bates. Familiar Captain Marvel villains Dr. Savannah and Black Adam were changed to Dr. Gargunza and the very British-sounding, and this is a great one, Young Nasty Man, respectfully. <laughs> Now, Marvel Man and the Marvel Man family stories would continue to be published until 1963 and be reprinted in other countries, such as Italy and Brazil, right around the time that the Silver Age was in full swing. Also, there'd been a relaxing on the British ban on American comics, meaning that Marvel Man now had to compete with the likes of Superman and Batman 
as well as the coming flood of the Marvel Age of Comics. Marvel Man and Young Marvel Man both ran until issue 370. Uh, To explain that huge number, we should probably mention that for most of their respective runs until 1960, these comics were released weekly. Uh, With issues 336 of each, the shift was made to monthly publication. Wow, that Gower Street Studio, Gower Studio, busy boy. They were pumping it out. They were cranking Uh, it. Now, when they shifted to monthly publication, they came the need to fatten these books up. And so, Marvel Man reprints, yep, not new stories, were crammed into books with unrelated war stories. Now, if you were to look at the covers for some of these, you'd swear that they were straight-up war titles. We'll, we'll try to include some of them on the blog as well. Wow. It'll, it just says Marvel Man, and it's a picture of a tank or, hey. or, a, fi- a, or like a, a jet with like people with parachutes jumping out. Uh, now, the t- titular Marvel Man family book wrapped up a bit earlier. It only ran 30 issues and finished up in November of 1959. I mean, I guess that's fair that Marvel Man turns into a, you know, it looks like a war title since Captain America looked like a horror title by the end of its, <laughs> his run, his initial run, right? But uh, just, I mean, I, we go into this a little bit later in the episode, but uh, just, to, just to say it, this is really tepid stuff we're talking about here, right? This is Silver yeah. Age Comics. Yeah. It's uh, not, con- this isn't controversial stuff. It's, you know, no, save- this is the stuff that nobody was excited about seeing. Save, save London from a meteor, beat up a big monster, that kind of thing. Uh, there's Dr. Gagwan Gonza, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, enter Miracle Man. Hmm. And L. Miller and Sons Publications was liquidated and their assets, including their asbestos printing plates, were sold to another British publisher, Alan Class Comics. Allen Class Limited would publish black and white digest anthology comics in the UK from 1959 to 1989, which included strips and stories from Timely, Atlas, which we're talking about Marvel there, ACG, that's American Comics Group, Charlton Comics, MLJ, Archie, Red Circle, that's really all one group, Fawcett Comics, King Features Comics, and newspaper strips, Sterling Comics, and Lev Gleason Publications. That's our crime does not pay, folks. Mm. As of May 2005, Century Comics in London have owned the rights to the class collection. Not sure if they have or are planning to do anything with that, but we figured it's worth mentioning. <laughs> now, with Miller & Sons' toes up and Anglo & Company out of the Marvel Man business, Mick began redrawing and relettering his old work. Uh, he released them as Captain Miracle under his own publication house of Anglo Comics. Captain Miracle would sometimes be seconded by Miracle Jr. Now, this was not a terribly successful venture. The title would only run for nine issues. Mm. Eventually, Anglo was approached to create a new superhero for the Spanish market, and so he went right back to the Marvel Man well, (laughs) redrawing and relettering old strips to create Super Ombre. (laughs) Almost immediately after, he'd sell the updated strips back to a UK publisher under the name Miracle Man. Uh, this is Miracle Man two words. Oh well, that's hugely forget. Then that's a totally different thing. Yeah. <laughs> now his transformation would occur uh, by uttering the word sun disc, which we all know is sickness backwards. Ah, uh, that makes perfect sense. Yes, that's a perfectly good one. <laughs> <laughs> now the title would find a measure of success in the Netherlands, where it ran as I don't know how to say it with a Netherlandian Mid- accent. Mid- I'm just going to put a little, you know, Miracle Man. You know. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Now, it's worth mentioning, this Miracle Man character actually made an appearance during Grant Morrison's 2008 AD strip, Zenith. That's so, that's hilarious. It's just hilarious you're making the same character over and over, <laughs> over, and over. All the, the derivatives, like, you know, it just looks 
And the thing is, what you know, the the derivatives actually look the least like Captain Marvel, but you know, it's oh yeah, the same thing. Uh, so now let's talk about yet another Captain Marvel in 1966. A very short-lived U.S. comic publisher, MF Enterprises, created a character called Captain Marvel because why not? Everyone else is doing it. Let's get one in there too. <laughs> Uh, some folks may know this fella as the one in a red, red jumpsuit who can break pieces off his body by shouting the magic word split, which is tilps backwards. <laughs> so there, there's that. Or conversely, had the rock rolling skills of Sisyphus, the livestock seduction of Pan, the hunger of Lemos, the fertility of Inanna, the killing his son and feeding the cooked remains to dinner guests of Tantalus. That's got to be it. I'm gonna think. I'm gonna think that was a Chris production <laughs> right there, right? Yeah. Uh, he also had a sidekick named Get This, Billy Baxter. Nice. A little close. A little, little close on the nose there. Uh, interesting to note that this Captain Marvel was created by Carl Burgos, who created the Android Human Torch way back in Marvel Comics number one. That was October 1939 cover date. This only lasted five issues in Myron Fass's MF Enterprises comics line was only in existence from 1966 to 67. MF Enterprise's more successful venture was Erie Publications, which produced horror titles such as Terror Tales, and which we may actually do an episode on one day, because I, I was torturing you with covers from that line. <laughs> yes, we'll have to get on that. I, yeah. It's very interesting stuff. Now, uh, for completionist's sake, there was also a Marco the Miracle Man, who would appear in Dixon Hawk. It's a non-comic book in the early 1920s. And Zambini the Miracle Man, who first appeared in Zip Comics number 1. That's February 1940 from MLJ Archie. Neither of them have done uh, have anything really to do with this, uh, but honestly, we'd probably never mention them otherwise. Well, there goes our plan to start a Dixon Hawk cast, Chris. Great. You never know. Uh, now, <laughs> now, before we jump ahead, let's discuss the name Marvel as it pertains to comics. Now, we'd venture to say that if we asked any random passerby what Marvel is, they'd probably say they're the company that has those Avengers movies. Or maybe they'd say they're the ones that make those Batman movies. Yeah. But the point is, they would know that it's somehow related to comic It's books. a comic thing somewhere in there. Yes. So they'd be like Stan Lee, something like that. Sure. Now, in brief, in 1939, pulp magazine publisher Martin Goodman founded Timely Publications. Timely's first publication was the one we just mentioned, Marvel Comics No. 1, October 1939. This features, among other things, the first appearance of Namor the Submariner and that android Human Torch. In 1951, with their November issues, Timely Comics featured the Atlas News Company Globe logo. Atlas News Company was the newsstand distribution company Goodman owned. Atlas is a pretty deep subject, and we'll likely cover that uh, in long form another time. Now, in June 1961, the comics were branded as Marvel Comics. First issues with Marvel branding were Journey into Mystery number 69 and Patsy Walker number 95. Just a tiny box that read MC at the time. Yep. We mentioned all this because while it's not terribly unusual for characters to share parts of their names, such as DC's Wonder Woman and Marvel's Wonder Man, or... DC's Power Girl and then Marvel's Power Man, having a character share a title with a competing company might make things a bit dicey. Legalese aside, you might be seen as unwittingly advertising a competitor. Uh, and it might also affect perception that readers would become confused as to why, say, Captain Marvel or Marvel Man was coming out from a publisher other than Marvel. Other, you know, uh, and why also Marvel has never made a character called uh, Super DC. There you go. Uh, that would just it would not be a good look for them. So 
Marvel Comics, just because, like I, like I say, everyone was doing it, uh, <laughs> they would create their own Captain Marvel. The Cree Marvell made his first appearance in Marvel Superheroes number 12, that was December 1967, cover date. Stanley is no dummy. Marvel would also trademark the name, blocking any other publisher from using it for comics. Which is why anytime DC pulls the big red cheese out of the mothballs, the cover reads Shazam. And, if legend is to believe why Marvel always made sure to pump out at least an issue or two bearing the Captain Marvel name every few years, keeping that trademark active. I mean, there was a time that it was weird. You know, just yes. Captain Marvel would come out of nowhere, and you'd be like, what? what, what? A single issue. <laughs> like, well, what are, is this taking away my X-Men comics? What's going on here, you know? But, uh, yeah, yeah, there's something to it. Absolutely. Uh, by this point, Fawcett, who is still in business, had licensed the Captain Marvel character to, well, the very people who put them out of the Captain Marvel business to begin with, DC Comics. Unfortunately, due to Marvel's trademark and their propensity to be litigious, there wasn't a whole lot DC could do with the property. They could refer to the character as Captain Marvel inside the book, inside the stories. However, the word Marvel could not be in the title of the series. The word Marvel could, however, appear on the cover, uh, but it might, you know, might not be a, a bear worth poking all that often. Yeah, it, this whole thing is so, it's, from a reader's perspective, it was always a question like, you always felt like they were almost pushing an envelope. You know what I mean? yes. They were testing, they were daring each other to step over a line That's this it. whole time. <laughs> now, we could continue to dig into Shazam comics, Captain Thunder, the 1970s television series, and why the character is now known simply as Shazam. But the Fawcett DC Captain Marvel saga could, should, and probably eventually will be yeah. a show unto itself. Uh, now, we said all of that, so we might say this. Uh, it was going to be difficult for any non-Marvel publisher to produce a comic with the word Marvel in the title. Not that that'll stop them across the pond. Nope. Over at Warrior Magazine, this was a comics anthology launched in 1982 from Des Skin's Quality Communications. It would run 26 issues from March 1982 to January 1985. Derek Deskin, born February 4th, 1951, was the head of Marvel Comics' UK operations during the late 1970s, sometimes referred to as the British Stan Lee and was actually headhunted into the position by the American Stan Lee. Uh, his career began as sub-editor for IPC Magazines, a position he held from 1970 to 1975. IPC was the International Publishing Corporation, now known as Time Incorporated. Uh, UK, oh, Time Incorporated UK, a subsidiary of Time Incorporated, publishes of, among other things, Time Magazine. Mm. He was plucked from IPC by Warner Brothers to edit a UK-focused Mad Magazine. He would remain from 1975 to 1978. At which time he was, in his words, arm-twisted by Stan Lee to turn around the fortunes of his then-ailing UK publishing division. He remained in the position for a mere 15 months, from 1979 to 1980. Des would say, only stayed 15 months or so because I'd fulfilled my function to make the company viable once more and didn't wish to simply replicate and dilute the successes or become a paper-pushing production editor. He was then voted Britain's humblest man in 1980. Oh, what? No, no, he wasn't. Uh, <laughs> he would found Quality Communications in 1981, where he would launch the Warrior Anthology. More on that in just a little bit. Yeah, you can see how this would get very complicated to the comics historian, because <laughs> you're thinking, like, Quality? Wasn't that another? But yeah, there, there was another publisher called Quality mm -hmm. in America. But anyway... Uh, a little bit of Alan Moore for you. Born November 18th, 1953 in Northampton, England. 
grew up in an impoverished area of blue-collar Northampton called the Burroughs. He was a voracious reader, did well enough in primary school to attend the more middle-class Northampton Grammar School, which goes from ages 11 to 18. But he got kicked out for dealing LSD. Wrote poems and stories for literary zines throughout the 1960s, eventually having his own titled Embryo. After drifting about for a while in 1973, Allen began dating and then married Northampton-born Phyllis Dixon and got a crummy office job working for the gas council. Then he decided that there's got to be a better way. Now, he's already done a couple of comic strips written and drawn by himself for the alternative press. His first paid work was a comic in NME Music Magazine. It was October 21st, 1978, and it was an illustration of Elvis Costello. He did a couple of strips for Sounds Music Magazine throughout the rest of the 70s. He submitted he submitted an unsolicited strip for a Judge Dredd to 2000 AD editor Alan Grant. Now, Dredd was already being written by John Wagner, but Grant recognized Moore's talent and asked him to do some work for Tharg's Future Shocks. This is a series of showcase strips that ran in 2000 AD as a testing ground for new talent. Now, he would work for 2000 AD as well as for Marvel UK. Moore recalls coming across an old Marvel Man annual unsold at a newsagent in 1968. He says, I wondered what Marvel Man was doing these days. I was struck by the image of the eternally youthful and exuberant hero as a middle-aged man, trudging in the streets and trying fruitlessly to remember his magic word. Hmm, now Alan Moore was interviewed by future collaborator David Lloyd for the Society of Strip Illustrators magazine. When asked if there were any properties he'd like to work on, he recalled his recurring Marvel Man concept and said, if anybody revived Marvel Man, I would like to write it because I'd got some great ideas of, uh, as to how it would be done. It wasn't long before Dez Skin came a-calling. Skin explained to Moore that Marvel Man's copyright belonged to L. Miller and Son, and following their bankruptcy, the rights to Marvel Man had passed to the official receiver. The official receiver, or OR, is an officer of the Insolvency Service of the United Kingdom. Therefore, the rights could be purchased for a very small amount, and so he gave Moore an offer to put his money where his mouth is and contribute his new retelling of Marvel Man for Warrior Magazine. And uh, Alan Moore... uh made up a proposal. Uh, we're, no, we're no strangers to Alan Moore proposals, uh, and we've come to learn that he paints quite the picture of what he intends to do with oh, whatever yeah. he's chosen to do. Almost as long uh, as the comics that follow, really. Sometimes longer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, you can check out our Weird Comics History look at Alan Moore's uh, Twilight of the Superheroes uh, pitch in the archives as well. Uh, Moore opens it with the mission statement, I'd like to bring what was basically a silly-ass script in line with the 1980s. First, he wants to emphasize the fact that Marvel Man is a superhero and highlight the sense of wonder that goes along with that. It is his, his intention to not only write the definitive Marvel Man, but also the definitive superhero. Second, he wants to pay tribute to the nostalgia the Marvel Man name and character may evoke. He, he said, in my opinion, the central appeal of nostalgia is that all this stuff in the past is gone. It's finished. We'll never see it again. And this is where the incredible poignance of nostalgia really comes from. Third, he wants to limit divergences to the core concept and keeping it with what he views as good sci-fi. He says, What I'm after is a spectacular 1950s superhero in a blue costume who says a magic word and was given his power by a wise old wizard and who now operates in the 1980s and who is totally scientifically credible. Dr. Emil Gargunza was the leading scientific advisor for Hitler's Third Reich. In 1948, Earth was visited by aliens. This is, of course, his, his uh, yeah, this is arch enemy. This is, this is, yeah. <laughs> in 
1948, he was visited by aliens. This is this is the uh, uh, Dr. Savannah of the Marvel Man. Yes. Gargunza kept this secret from the rest of the world and thus began his spook show. This is Gargunza's own Air Force intelligence ops. The aliens, when autopsied, were revealed as having two skeletons, two sets of organs, blah, blah, all that. Gargunza deduced from these that these aliens were uh, possessed of the secret of alternate personas and could transform between them. By 1954, he was ready to start experimenting. Yes, we have Michael Moran here, born 1939, lost both of his parents and was orphaned by age 12. In 1953, he would take a job at the local newspaper. In 1954, Michael followed up on a story about a wizard, and it's here that he was given the magic word Komoda. Uh, From this point on, Mickey Moran was Marvel Man. Richard Dawson, that was the uh, former host of Family Feud who liked to kiss all the women. Uh, oh. D- d- different, different, different. Oh, 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 wait, this is uh, Dickie Dawson, right? Another Yes, orphan. yes. Uh, he also had a run-in with a wizard uh, this, and would become young Marvel Man by saying Marvel Man, which is really dumb. Yeah, just like the what uh, Captain Marvel, uh, Captain Marvel Junior will say, Captain Marvel. He's just got the same exact thing. I know. <laughs> so dumb. Let me get, get the same word. We got Johnny Bates, another orphan. He'd become Kid Marvel Man. The Marvel Man family, together the Marvels would fight crime for about a half decade, never really thinking about how similar their origin stories were. All three orphans, all three met a wizard. There you go. Uh, Now they would face off against silly Silver Age threats, uh, if we can even call them threats, because in the 1950s, nobody seemed to ever get hurt. Mm, Very strange. Back to Dr. Gargunza, his experiment would run until 1961, and we'll talk about just what that was in a little bit. With that experiment done, he has no further use of the Marvel Man family, and so he disposes of them. Mickey and Johnny survive, but Dickie does not. Mickey Moran is discovered unconscious and an amnesiac in a field. He starts working for Fleet Street in 1962. He marries Elizabeth O'Rourke in 1965. In 1975, he begins suffering nightmares and migraines. In 1981, Moore's story begins with... A dream of flying. Mickey realizes who he really is, and we'll discuss that more in just a bit. But first, a little bit more about Johnny Bates. As mentioned, Johnny survived the disposal attempt, and he also managed to keep his memory. Johnny knows he's just about the most powerful being on Earth, and has no senior Marvel Man to answer to anymore. He decides to remain in his kid Marvel Man form at all times while using the Johnny Bates identity. So he still uses the name Johnny Bates, but he does not use Johnny Bates' body anymore. Mm -hmm. Now, Moore would say he has wealth, power, and not considerable political influence. He has also, by being so long divorced from his own humanity, turned into a nasty, amoral son of a bitch. As you might imagine, he isn't terribly pleased when Marvel Man remembers who he is and makes his grand return in 1981. He tracks down the body of Dickie Dauntless and finds that his remains have two skeletons. Mm-hmm. Now, the alternate persona concept, let's let more explain it because we probably couldn't. Yes, it's tough. He says a cell sample is taken from the intended recipient. It is then altered by certain specific changes to the structure of the DNA spiral. The new body is then grown to the correct age artificially. It is not completely alive mentally. It functions on a level of some conscious awareness and is thus almost catatonically inert. The full-grown persona is then twisted into the same spatial plane that neutrinos seem to exist in. And he continues, 
An implant is then placed in the brain of the recipient subject and keyed to a hypnotically implanted code word. What the word actually is doesn't seem to matter at all. The personas age concurrently, however, only when they are in use. So if Michael was to say, not turn into Marvel Man for a couple of decades, Marvel Man would not age. If Johnny Bates would only be Kid Marvel Man, that's the persona who would be racking up the years. You get it? Mm-hmm. Artist Gary Leach was chosen for the revival, although Moore's recommended artists included Dave Gibbons and Steve Dillon. A very brief look at Gary Leach. He was born September 19th, uh, 1954 in uh, Britain. We I would guess somewhere, yeah. <laughs> Now, his earliest comics work was in 2000 AD, specifically stories featuring Dan Dare and Mach 1. Also, he did some future shocks like like they all seem to do. Uh, in 1981, he would join up with Dez Skin's Quality Communications. Uh, now, with Warrior Number 1, uh, we get a look at the cover here. In the bottom left corner of that cover, dated March 1982, there was a character in full silhouette with a yellow question mark on its chest. Below it read, from present-day Britain, a hero reborn. Right, so we're going to go through the whole shebang here, folks. All that Alan Moore and Gary Leach wrought, and later on other artists, I think, right? Uh, <laughs> Warrior number one, March 1982 cover. First two chapters of the new Marvel Man story. Book one, A Dream of Flying, chapter one, colon, 1956, and chapter two, 1982 prologue. By Alan Moore and Gary Leach, Michael Moran is having a recurring dream of flying. He regularly wakes up with a migraine. During a reporting assignment at a nuclear power plant, he finds himself in the middle of a terrorist situation. His migraine worsening, he sees the word atomic on the backside of a glass window, which reminds him of the secret word he'd long forgotten. Upon saying Kimota, he becomes Marvel Man and takes out the terrorists. Yes, the next uh, next issue of Warrior, Warrior number two, April 1982 cover date. This would feature Marvel Man's first cover appearance. Uh, this is book one, chapter three, by Alan Moore and Gary Leach. Michael returns home to his wife while still in his Marvel Man guise, and he shares with her his secret origin, or, <laughs> or at least uh, what he knows of it. <laughs> uh, that must have been nice for her, yeah. Uh... <laughs> Warrior number three, July 1982 covers book one, chapter four, When Johnny Comes Marching Home by Alan Moore and Gary Leach. Michael learns that former sidekick Johnny Kid Marvel Man Bates is still alive. Kid Marvel Man first appeared in Marvel Man number 102, July 1955 cover. Michael and Liz Moran visit with Johnny, who claims to have lost his powers. It's revealed pretty quickly that he indeed did not, and he attacks Mike Moran. Mm-hmm. Warrior Issue 4, Summer 1982. This is the Yesterday Gambit. This is written by Alan Moore with art by Steve Dillon, Paul Neary, and Alan Davis. Now, this is an interlude to make up for uh, Gary Leach's tardiness. This is a glimpse into Miracle, uh, Marvel Man's future. Uh, now, Warrior Number 5, this is September 1982. We're back to Book 1. This is Chapter 5, Dragons, uh, by Alan Moore and Gary Leach. In it, Kid Marvel Man's rampage continues. Over to Warrior number 6, October 82 cover, book 1, chapter 6, Fallen Angels, Forgotten Thunder, by Alan Moore and Gary Leach. The Marvel Man-Kid Marvel Man battle draws the attention of Project Zarathustra and a man named Sir Dennis Archer. Johnny accidentally calls out the secret word Marvel Man during the battle, transforming him back to his child state. Marvel Man spares his life, however, but Johnny is is rendered into a vegetative state. Archer calls in a man named Evelyn Cream to take care of things. 
Now, Warrior number seven, November 1982, book one, chapter seven, Secret Identity. It's by Alan Moore, Gary Leach, and Alan Davis. Mike and Liz see what Marvel Man is capable of. Evelyn Cream attempts to deduce the man behind the Marvel. He questions one man named Steve, and once he gets his answer, he smothers him to, de- to death with his massive mitt. It's a, it's an inter- he visits him in the hospital and says, I promise I won't kill you. And then he gives him the answer he needs, and then he goes, he hands him a piece of paper and says, about not killing you, I lied, and he smothers him with his mitt. Oh, that's yeah. a, so Evelyn Cream is a fella. Yes. Right. Okay. I, I just wanted to say that, that that is something that we in the U.S. would not assume. That's all. That's no. All I'm going to say. That, that's fine. Uh, at this point, Alan Davis took over the art chores. Alan Davis, in brief and only up to this point, born June 18th at some point in the 20th century, we're pretty sure. He doesn't look that old. Uh, somewhere in the United Kingdom, he began his comics career doing art for a British fancy. Paul Neary and Des Skin, who was still working at Marvel UK, would assign Davis a Captain Britain story for the mighty world of Marvel. This was Captain Britain's revival series, written by Alan Moore. He'd also do some work for 2000 AD, and also teaming up there with Alan Moore. Together, they would create DR and Quitch. Uh, Warrior Issue 8, December 1982. Book 1, Chapter 8, Blue Murder, by Alan's Moore and Davis. Uh, Michael meets Mr. Cream. Cream asks Michael to hold a baby, which stops him from transforming into Marvel Man. Because if he were to transform, the kinetic aura he'd create would have killed the child. So it, uh, <laughs> it kind of handcuffs him. Wow. Uh, Warrior number nine, January 83 cover. Book one, chapter nine, Out of the Dark by Alan's Moore and Davis. Cream hits Michael with a tranquilizer dart and directs him to Project Zarathustra. He's supposed to kill him, but chooses not to. Moran marvels up and busts his way through Zarathustra's defenses and winds up facing off with Big Ben, the man with no time for crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, Warrior number 10, April 1983. Book 1, Chapter 10, Inside Story. This is Morn Davis. Uh, Marvel Man takes Big Ben out with the quickness and approaches the Zarathustra bunker. Uh, Warrior issue 11. And remember, these are this is an anthology, so these are only like eight-page stories. Right. So that's why they're, uh, they're kind of quick to go through. Uh, now, Warrior 11, July 1983. Still in Book 1, Chapter 11, Zarathustra, by Alan Moore and Alan Davis. Uh, Marvel Man learns that all of his Silver Age adventures were memories implanted by Dr. Gurgunza, which is a pretty clever way to make sense of and to place these stories without just retconning them out completely. Exactly, yeah, so that they they happened but didn't really happen. Uh, Warrior number 12, August 1983, cover by Alan Moore and John Ridgway. This is a silent short starring young Marvel Man. And then Warrior number 13, September 1983, this is book two, The Red King Syndrome, chapter one, Cat Games, by Morin Davis. Mike and Liz have some marriage trouble, an interesting take on the love triangle. There are now three people involved in their marriage, Mike, Liz, and Marvel Man. Johnny Bates is haunted by his kid Marvel Man alter ego as it tries to resurface. Warrior number 14, October 1983. Book 2, Chapter 2, One of Those Quiet Moments by Morn Davis. Marvel Man returns home, and the house is ransacked, and Liz has gone missing. Warrior number 15, November 1983 cover. Book 2, Chapter 3, Nightmares by Morin Davis. Marvel Man gets help from Cream and deduces that Dr. Gargunza is responsible for Liz Moran's disappearance. The doc has designs on the Moran baby. Oh, uh, Liz is pregnant. We forgot to mention that. 
Yes. <laughs> now, Warrior, Warrior Issue 16, December 1983. Book 2, Chapter 4, The Approaching Light, by Alan Moore, Alan Davis. Uh, Gargunza keeps monitoring Liz and the unborn baby. Mike and Cream head to Paraguay to track the baddie down. Warrior number 17, March 84, cover date. Marvel Man Family, The Red King Syndrome. This is another Alan Moore and John Ridgway joint. This is a flashback story exploring some of the Gargunza programming. I guess they received in the Silver Age, that's the idea. Uh, Warrior number 18, April 1984 cover. This is book two, chapter five. I heard Woodrow Wilson's Guns by Alan Moore and Alan Davis. A Gargunza origin special, and also Marvel Dog. Hey, now we're going to skip Warrior 19 because Marvel Man don't appear in that and jump straight to Warrior number 20. This is July 1984. Book two, chapter six, A Little Piece of Heaven by Alan Moore and Alan Davis. More Gugunza origin and just how Zarathustra got rolling. Warrior number 21, August 84. Book 2, Chapter 7, And Every Dog Its Day, by Alan's Moore and Davis. Marvel Man and Cream arrive in Paraguay. Gugunza uses the override word Abraxas to turn Marvel Man back into Michael Moran. And that's where it ends, for now, because... Yeah, perhaps a step too far for quality was publishing the spinoff Marvel Man special. Nothing like waking a sleeping beast. Marvel could not force quality to stop publishing Marvel Man stories, nor from all accounts were they terribly interested to. However, being the trademark holder would not be legally responsible to allow another publication with the word Marvel in the title. You know, if you don't challenge these things in yeah, court... You lose credibility. You lose credibility. You basically open up the door for the next, you know, 10 people to try the same thing. Uh, in the opening pages of Warrior number 25, or, vo- uh, or Volume 3, number 1... December 1984, Quality Communications printed the letter they'd received from Marvel's legal counsel, Jacques, Jacques and Lewis. Uh, the article was called By Any Other Name, in which Quality prefaced, possibly the most popular feature in the first two volumes of Warrior has been Marvel Man, which may ha- have to read M. Starvel Man in the future. <laughs> in the following, the following, for the sake of unbiased news reporting, is the content of a letter sent to each director of Publishers of Warrior, along with its reply from the company's managing director. In part, it may answer the questions many of you have asked about the obvious absence of our resident superhuman for the latter part of George Orwell's year of Big Brother. Draw your own conclusions. Now the letter reads, Dear Sirs, we act for Marvel Comics Limited and Marvel Comics Group, a division of Cadence Industries Corporation of the USA. Marvel Comics Limited has since the the early 1970s published and sold periodicals throughout the United Kingdom, incorporated and or bearing its corporate name and or the registered trademark Marvel and or the names of Captain Marvel and Marvel superheroes characters, which are themselves registered trademarks in the UK. Marvel Comics Group is the registered proprietor of the above-mentioned trademarks. Our clients are and have been for many years closely associated and identified with the registered trademarks derived from them in the eyes of the general public. Just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The letter continues. We understand that in June 1984, you published a periodical entitled Marvel Man and bearing the additional description special number one. By using the name Marvel Man in connection with that periodical, you are representing with that that periodical is a product of or associated with our clients, which is not the case. You are thereby wrongfully taking advantage of the substantial reputation and goodwill which our clients have established under their respective corporate 
and divisional names, and under the names of the several Marvel characters referred to above. You are confusing the existing and potential customers of our clients, and this has caused, and is continuing to cause, damage to our clients' business. Therefore, unless you receive by 12 noon on Monday, 1st October, your unconditional undertaking to cease using the name Marvel Man or any colorable imitation thereof, including ceasing to use that name or on or in connection with your business and periodicals published by you and on all stationery and trading documents used by you, we will recommend that our clients commence high court proceedings against you immediately thereafter, claiming an injunction to restrain any such use and damages for passing off your business as that of or associated with the business of our clients. We are sending copies of the letter to each director. Yours faithfully, Jacques and Lewis. Then, then a rebuttal in Warrior number 26, February 1985. This is the final issue of Warrior, by the way. Uh, Dez says, we are in receipt of your letter of October 2nd concerning our, concerning our publication of the above-mentioned character. I personally must admit to a certain amount of confusion over your repeated mention to recommend high court proceedings against us to your client, Marvel Comics. My letter of September 26th was intended to inform you of various facts about which you may not be aware, to, to enable you to fully appreciate the situation before making any recommendations to your client. To that end, I feel I must mention that the two instances you cited, Captain Marvel and Marvel Superheroes, are not current publications, so I cannot understand your reference to confusing customers or causing damage to your client's business. Neither can I find either to be registered trademarks. However, we have no plan we, we have no plans to publish and further any further magazines which feature Marvel Man as part of the titles such as Marvel Man Special Number 1, which you specifically named in your original letter of September 21st. I would hope this prevents any confusion your client feels may exist. Such confusion is not in our interest and certainly not our intention, given the trade feeling towards your client, according to various wholesalers we have spoken to. In connection with the character Marvel Man appearing within our publication, Warrior, we have been doing so for almost three years having received no reaction whatsoever from the wholesale trade from readers or Marvel Comics or their representatives concerning confusion. Given Marvel's own recommendation for our material in print several times and their visual inclusion of Marvel Man within recent publication storylines, likely a, this one's likely a reference to Alan Moore, Alan Davis's Captain Britain story in Marvel UK's Daredevils number 7, July 1983 cover. Uh, Des continues, we feel entirely innocent of passing off our business as that of, or connected with, your client. Considerable expense was involved in securing and relaunching the 1950s and 1960s registered property, which has since won many awards for its originality. But until you have cleared up this matter with the copyright holders, we would prefer not to resume publication. Your client is well aware of the copyright situation concerning Marvel Man, employing the same freelance creators as ourselves. But I must insist that if your client sees this as a genuine problem, the matter is resolved quickly, as we cannot realistically withhold an unfinished lead feature indefinitely. Yours faithfully, DG Skin. And, you know, Chris, I think we should have read that in British accents, you think? <laughs> I, it, would, it would have been much more offensive, but it would have made would much have. more sense. It would have indeed. Now, as mentioned, this is the final issue of Warrior until a 1996 spring special one-shot, which has nothing to do with Marvel Man. Uh, And with that, 
we're gonna we're gonna cut it off here. We're gonna wrap things up here for now. Oh, because well, everything was fine after this, right? That yes. no one ever heard of Marvel Man or Miracle Man this, ever this again. One hiccup. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, our next episode, we will be talking about a revival of Marvel Man, a little closer to the House of Ideas than they like. Uh, that's stateside, of course. Yeah. Uh, and we're gonna be talking a lot more. A lot more growing pains uh, for oh, yeah. this uh, for this property, for this character, and for just about every creator ever involved with him. This thing becomes a legal thriller, folks. So if you're a fan of <laughs> Law and Order or shows like that, this could really be right up your alley. Uh, yes, let your I, uh, let your fingernails grow out because you're going to be biting them. You know, as I, we uh, as we go through this. Well, one thing I, I do want to mention, though, you know, Alan Moore taking this character and deconstructing it really is the first. I'd say the first time it's been done in this way. You know, sure. Poking fun at, at superheroes and, and, you know, what the trope is and whatever. That that had been going on. Uh, Marvel, oh, Marvel had not brand You know, I mean, Mad Magazine did it in the 50s, so it's not, it wasn't the first time. But uh, to really break it down, bring an element of realism to it. And we'll get more into how real it gets uh, in the next yes. episode. This, this is, you're looking at the beginnings of, you know, what is basically modern comic storytelling is all about as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Absolutely. This, uh, this is definitely the shift in the language for the for the writing end, for sure. Yeah, and you know, you can almost just follow Alan Moore's uh, works from this point. You know, this, then V for Vendetta, then you know, Swamp because thing. V for Vendetta was uh, was go, was coming out concurrently in Warrior Magazine alongside right. this. But uh, I mean, this is all before Watchmen. It's all before Swamp Thing. It's this is really the uh, the seminal uh, deconstructive piece. I think. I think this is where he you know tried his ideas out. So sure. That, so that when he got the Watchmen, they, he was pretty sure how he wanted a lot of it to go. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's out there to get. But we're going to talk about how you can get it in a future episode and what the, yes. what the story is with that, folks. Uh, there's a lot more to come. But uh, if you would like to write to us and tell us about your feelings about Marvel Man or Mick Anglo or UK publishing, uh, comics publishing, <laughs> you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic t-mail history. We also have a Tumblr, cosmic t-mail history.tumblr.com. And on Twitter at cosmic t-mail. I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. See our weekly writings about newer comics at weirdsciencedccomics.com. And you can check out Chris's personal blog over at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com where he... Reviews and dissects and comments on a different DC title, DC Comics title, every day of the week, going on now many, many days. Do you know how many days it is offhand? Yes, uh, uh, yeah, 786 was today, I think. So uh, by the time this episode comes out, it'll be in the 790s. My goodness, you know, I, I mm-hmm. can't stick to a diet for three days, and here you are just hanging <laughs> this out. Uh, you got to go check that out. Chris is on infiniteearth.com. It's... Uh, he has pictures from the comic. He puts ads at the bottom, and his commentary is unparalleled. Thank you. <laughs> now, we also have uh, our show site, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where you'll see all of our show notes for uh, episodes of Weird Comics History and The Cosmic Treadmill and any other silly stuff we might find to uh, to put up there. Yeah. Uh, this week, we'll try to get some of that uh, some of that Captain Marvel, the Marvel Man covers up and uh, all sorts of good stuff. Yeah. Um, we're also on YouTube. Just search Weird Comics History without the spaces. That's All right. Over, and we should be the first thing that comes up. So far, we have been. Uh, we'll see. Maybe not. 
maybe now someone else try to sneak this you'll find out it's like go to weird comics history it'll be like you know uh Five, exactly <laughs> five, five fingers sink you to sing baba black sheep my you god believe what the third one says let me tell you something that that's not anything for the comics podcast but what kids are watching on youtube not good Terrible. folks it's not good Terrible. it's some of it's 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 not good stuff this is not uh the you know the uh, children broadcasting network is not behind it so you better look out but anyway <laughs> yeah, if, you're, if your kids are using the uh the yt kids app Ooh, be vigilant there is some freaky stuff on that but anyway uh that's for someone else to cover i don't know even want to <laughs> i don't even want to do the research for that one you know what i mean no. uh but i think that's all we got for, for this episode you got anything else for nope i think that'll do us well until next week folks i want you to keep it weird historically see ya My name is Chris. And we bring you Weird Comics History, episode number 28, Exploring the Mysteries of Miracle Man, part two, coming to America. Uh, You can find us every Sunday and sporadically on Tuesdays and other days of the week on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or pick us up from iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and wherever fine podcasts are. Aggregated, right? Would you say so, Chris? Am I, I, missing, think, yeah. am I missing any there? The list, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the list has grown so much over the over time that uh, I'm not really sure we catch all of them. But I assume any one of them will pick up the uh, our podcast over there on ChrisandReggie.Podbean.com. Just to throw it out there one more time. <laughs> so this is part two of three of our look at the amazing mysteries of Miracle Man, and uh, as we'll come to know him shortly. Well, I'm sorry, Marvel Man, and as we'll come to know him shortly, Miracle Man. Anyway, let me let me do a recap. Uh, Captain Marvel and related comics were created and published in the United States by Fawcett Comics from 1940 to 1953. These comics were licensed for reprint in the UK by L. Miller and Sons Limited. When the original Captain Marvel comics dried up, they took another tack and hired Mick Anglo 
through his Gower Studios to create new similar characters for publication. And so Marvel Man and the Marvel Man family were created. Marvel Man would end its run in 1959, and L. Miller and Sons liquidated their assets. Years later, the after some stuff, you'll have to listen to the last episode to find out the specifics of what happened in the interim, but for the purpose of our story, years later, the UK's Warrior magazine, which was an anthology of comics that began in 1982, would purchase the rights to Marvel Man, uh, specifically so Alan Moore could write his deconstructed take on the character. Marvel Comics sent a cease and desist letter to Warrior, uh, which was a couple of pages long from the looks of it, <laughs> uh, which they were, which they more or less rejected and then ceased operations for unrelated reasons, sort of leaving the point moot right there. But Pretty much. That will not be the end of our miraculous Marvel Men. We go to part two of that story. We do, and we're going to start off by discussing Eclipse Comics. Now, there comes a time when a property is seen as financially viable, such as Alan Moore's Marvel Man. So why not try to publish the reprints in the United States? Well, there is that whole name thing. Uh, we know that cease and desist thing happened, so uh, Marvel Man could not legally be the title of the comic book. And, uh, oddly enough, Marvel Comics actually passed on the property when offered licensing rights. Uh, Alan Moore says the following. They were very heavy-handed about the entire thing, especially since Marvel Man had been copyrighted in 1953, which, according to the no-doubt antiquated calendar that we still use over here, was several years before 1961, when I believe Marvel copyrighted their name in America. Now, he cites this, along with a subsequent domestic renaming of the property, as when his initial problems with Marvel started. He continues to say, That is what led me to state that I didn't want to work for Marvel, and they haven't really done anything to change my opinion of them since. Uh, DC Comics also passed on the rights. Uh, they probably weren't too keen on publishing a Komoda ongoing series. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, they already mm -hmm. they had their uh, you know, Shazam, they had no reason. But as you can see from Marvel's point of view, it's kind of a big risk. Like, yeah, will, you can't let it go. Will yeah. American audiences uh, even like this, you know, or want to sure. read this? You know, it, it would have been a lot for them to take that on uh, at, at that time, even while they were still riding high. But anyway, uh, Eclipse Comics would become Marvel Man's American home, but only after Pacific Comics, who had acquired the license, went out of business before putting an issue out. Eclipse Comics was founded in 1977 as Eclipse Enterprises by Jan and Dean Mullaney. Published the first graphic novel specifically for the comic book specialty store in August 1978. This was Saber, Slow Fate of an Endangered Species by Don McGregor and Paul Gulissi. Gulissi? Gulissi. Gulissi? Oh. There you go. There, that, that's, <laughs> that all sounds right. Uh, after moving from their Staten Island digs to an office in Columbia, Missouri, Dean Mullaney's wife, Cat. Ironwood took over as editor-in-chief, and thanks in part to the popularity of the independent comics market, was able to expand their publishing line. In addition to Marvel Man, other properties from her tenure include The Rocketeer by Dave Stevens and Zot by Scott McCloud, both very well-remembered uh, works of their time. In 1985, she, along with Trina Robbins, co-wrote the book Women on Comics for Eclipse Books. Uh, Trina Robbins, you'll remember, is the uh, woman who started women, women's comics, women's right? comics in, the, yes. uh, in the underground this years, uh, as well as the first woman to draw Superman. Anyway, uh, Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman. Anyway, yeah. uh, Eclipse produced lines of nonfiction, non-sport trading cards featuring such topics as uh, Iran Contra, AIDS, the Kennedy assassination, serial killers, mass murderers, and the mafia. 
These are mm. that's like fun set of cards, huh, Chris? Doesn't it? <laughs> I can see you and your friends are swapping them, putting them in your baseball uh, yeah, your, uh, no, bike, I, I bicycle spokes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I actually remember. Uh, I'm not positive we're talk- we got to be talking about the same cards, but I do remember cards like this. The '80s were a funny time, folks. You know what I mean? Kind of very <laughs> cynical, dark time. Uh, in 1988, Eclipse, under their Eclipse International banner, brought over some early manga, including My the Psychic Girl. Perhaps best remembered for the cover copy, She is Pretty, She is Psychic, She is Japanese. Mm. Uh, you know, they're trying to introduce manga, though, to an American audience. It's tough sure. <laughs> tough to know what, what crevice to uh, get into. Uh, and then, uh, before that, in 1986, there was a flood which caused Eclipse the majority of their back issue stock. And put a crit production. We'll have more on that a little bit later. Yes, we're going to hop back to Marvel Man. Uh, via Mike Friedrich, Eclipse was put in touch with our pal uh, D- Des Skin, and the rest was history. They they got the rights, and they were going to go with it. Uh, the name of the book was changed to the more familiar to many of us American types as Miracle Man. Uh, this allowed them to keep the double M Marvel Man logo and costume. Oddly enough, in Alan Moore and Alan's Moore and Davis Marvel UK Captain Britain strips, they created a character based off of Marvel Man called Miracle Man. Oh, boy. It just never stops. It never. It, it <laughs> never. They can't make it easy on you, you know. You cannot never. Uh, Cat Ironwood is, uh, has said, uh, when we finished reprinting the Warrior material, we just kept on with the series working with Alan Moore. Uh, this will be important for what's to come. She said, we bought a part of the ownership of the series, which Pacific Comics had never intended to do. They simply intended to reprint existing British stuff and then stop because Des was no longer publishing. Because by that time, there had been a shakeout in the industry. We bought out Des's share. You have to remember that. Yes. We bought out Des's, Des's share. share. <laughs> uh, Miracle Man number one was published with an August 1985 cover date and was in full color as opposed to the black and white originally uh, was done in Warrior magazine. Nearly every mention of Marvel Man was edited in these reprints, though few did make it away to press. The little instances of, of Marvel Man. Sure. The entire back catalog of Warrior Marvel Man stories were reprinted in the first five and a half issues of the Eclipse run. And after this, Alan Moore returned to complete the story without Alan Davis, who with whom he was quarreling, uh, which is unusual for Alan Moore to be quarreling yeah, he, with anybody we know. He usually gets along with everybody. It, I guess must be the Alan thing. They didn't know. They kept, <laughs> they kept both saying yes whenever they heard their name called. It, it was annoying. <laughs> Uh, new artists would include Moore's Swamp Thing pals John Totalman and Rick Veach, and Chuck Beckham, who we all might know better as Chuck Austin. Yeah, that Chuck Austin. Mm-hmm. Now, the Eclipse run, the first five reprint issues, we have Miracle Man number one, August 1985. Uh, per the Amazing Heroes preview special number two, this is cover dated winter 1986, Eclipse worked with a Finnish printer, for the first issue, which resulted in a, quote, miscolored, damage-heavy issue. Uh, this would account for the two-month delay between the first and second Eclipse issues, which is kind of weird since, you know, these were reprints. All the work was already done. Have you seen the uh, first printings at all? Do you know what was the... Yeah. Okay. I, I didn't notice anything bad about it, but uh, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll take that word for it. <laughs> okay, sure. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not like the, the reds are green or whatever. You, you, it just... No, no, it's nothing nothing that outrageous. I... I, I, I I looked at it a little while ago, and I didn't really see much difference. Yeah, I mean, the coloring of these is sort of almost watercolor anyway, right? It's, it's, yeah. not, it's not your typical comic book. Yeah, lay, it's lay down a, a swap of almost color. Almost ethereal, yeah. It is. It's like painted, anyway. 
And uh, to see, Miracle Man number two came out October 1985 cover date. Miracle Man number three, November 1985 cover date. Miracle number four came out December 1985 cover. When Miracle Man number five had a January 1985 cover. Then Miracle Man number six, the first new one in February 1986 cover date, titled "Every Dog Has His Day and All Heads Turn as the Hunt Goes By," by Alan Moore, John Ridgway, Chuck Beckham, and Alan Davis. The first half is the Abraxas story from the Warrior Run, but the second features Evelyn Cream being devoured by Miracle Dog. Mm. Uh, Miracle Man number seven, April 1986 cover. These are two stories. It's Bodies and The Wish I Wish Tonight by Alan Moore, Pedro Henry, John Ridgway, and Chuck Beckham. Mike, Mike Moran, Miracle Man, uh, takes out Miracle Dog, but loses a few fingers in the process. He uses the keyword Steppenwolf that he'd overheard Gugunza use to transform the pup initially. He then manages to change back into Miracle Man and kills Dr. Dr. Gugunza. Uh, he crushes his larynx before he could say Abraxas, which is the canceling outward, then flies into orbit and smashes Gargunza back into Earth's atmosphere. Ooh, that's rough. And again, uh, this is confusing. Go back and listen to the previous episode. We explained yes. who all these characters are there. Yeah, we kept it purposely vague because we didn't want to spoil everything, but uh, enough of it's there to follow. Enough that you should be able to, and frankly, you should be able to follow through context essentially what's going on here. But anyway, uh, sure. Miracle Man number 8, June 86 cover date. Miracle Man combats the electric terror by Mick Anglo. This issue came out in the aftermath of the eclipse flood we discussed earlier. It would open with an editorial by Cat Ironwood apologizing for missing their deadline and include a preview for upcoming for the upcoming eclipse new wave book. The framing sequence was drawn by Chuck Beckham. That brings us to a very special issue. Oh, Miracle yes. Man number 9, cover dated July 1986. Story is called Birth. Was by Alan Moore and Rick Veach. Uh, this cover, this issue features the rescue of Liz Moran and the quote graphic childbirth of Miracle Baby, who will be named Winter, and it's hinted at pretty heavily that she's a superhuman just like her father uh, right off the bat. Um, also, Johnny Bates continues fighting off his kid Miracle Man alter ego, and also he's visited by aliens. All right. Uh, now these are the. Uh, Q-Y-S. How, how would you pronounce that? I would say Kai's. Kai's, okay. These are the Kai's aliens, and we'll talk a little bit more about them in a little bit. Now, when asked about how he felt about being tasked, about being tasked with drawing such a realistic take on childbirth, Beach would say, I wasn't surprised by anything Alan did by that point because he was shaking the whole industry up with original and imaginative ways of writing comics. And I don't think Alan or I understood the business side of comics enough at that point to realize the position we were putting the retailers in by showing swollen vaginas and such. Eclipse editor Cat Ironwood was closely involved with the story, says Veach. Veach uh, says, Cat was rightly concerned that I'd not follow Alan's directions and turn the thing into a ridiculous mess like most other depictions of birth in comics have been done. I think she pointed out one where the artist had swiped a spread shot from Hustler for a birthing pose. Wow. Oh, Cat uh, <laughs> Ironwood adds, uh, I went off to get photo reference. We were used for photo reference a book called A Child is Born, which has been in print since the 60s. If you compare the book, which is available in almost every public library, with the pictures in Miracle Man, you'll see that they are copies from that. When asked about clapback, she offers one retailer in Southern California who also had a second career writing pornography under another name, 
and who has seven children of his own, his own biological children, and had attended their births and videotaped them, told us he wouldn't carry the childbirth issue in his store. At that point, I knew we were really dealing with a form of major hypocrisy and a hatred of nature and a fear of natural processes. Uh, from that quote, I'm not sure who overreacted more. The yeah, really. Uh, okay. <laughs> now, they would, a clip that is, begrudgingly include a warning on the cover of the issue. It's a little square, like a, like the Surgeon General's warning on cigarettes. Okay. It says, uh, attention parents, this issue contains graphic scenes of childbirth. I, a couple of years later, they would have definitely polybagged it, I think. You know, that would have been the— They uh, did in the reprint. The, in the reprint. The Marvel they, reprint, they I, did. Later on, they not did, Not to yeah. spoil the story, but— uh, But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's—it's that's, uh, funny. It is just a little bit kind of before that became a normal yes. comics practice. Uh, Miracle Man number 10 had a cover date of December 1986, and then you got to note the six-month gap between this and the last issue, which is sadly a sign of things to come. Uh Titled Mind Games by Alan Moore and Rick Beach, the aliens continue tracking down subjects of Project Zarathustra. Johnny Bates fights off his kid Miracle Man or Alter Ego. And Mike and Liz Moran's marriage continue... Ah, sorry. Mike and Liz Moran's marriage continues to weaken. Baby Winter shows signs of advanced intelligence and a little uh, superheroine, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Meet Miracle Woman. Who is she? She is revealed when the Kai's aliens run an analysis on the Miracle family. The family of Cuckoos is now at six members. Miracle Man, Winter, Kid Miracle Man, Young Miracle Man, Miracle Dog, and Miracle Woman. Hmm. We jump to Miracle Man, issue 11, April 1987, cover date. It's Kronos by Alan Moore and John Tottleman. Only a four-month gap yep. this time around. Now, this is the start of Alan Moore's book three of Miracle Man referred to as Olympus. Book three reads as rather compressed. Many folks believe that Moore crammed three extra books worth of stories, so books four, five, and six of Miracle Man into this one arc. Uh, You compound that with the fact that each issue of book three only runs 16 pages of story. I mean, Alan Moore's work is dense as it is. This is some very dense reading. Seems like they should dispense with the comics and just let him... uh... Just, yeah, white prose. Now, the arc begins analyzing a world that had been taken over by superhumans, where the super people have become the, quote, rulers of the Earth. Hmm, that sounds familiar, you know. Hmm. Uh, might want to take a look at or listen to Weird Comics History, episode 23, Twilight of the Superheroes in the Archives, for a similar Alan Moore pitch. Yes. Now, this issue begins five years after the events of the previous issue, with Miracle Man presiding over a whole parliament of supertypes. Flashback reveals that Miracle Man had a bit of a battle with those Keys aliens several years earlier. Uh, They would attempt to apprehend Baby Winter, but would be stopped by Miracle Woman. Then Miracle Man number 12, September 1987, cover date. This is Aphrodite by Alan Moore and John Tottleman. The Secret Origin of Miracle Woman, and she, like other members of the Miracle Man family, was kidnapped as a teen and experimented on by Gargunza. Another test subject, Terence Rebek, is introduced. He would be young Nasty Man, who is like the other bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he was that, yeah, faux Black's Adam type, the reverse of Marvel Man, or now Miracle Man. Um, after the bomb of 1963 went off, Miracle Woman went into hiding only resurfacing after Miracle Man's return. 
Yes, we jump to Miracle Man number 13, November 1987, cover date. This is the next actual part of book three, and it only comes out seven months after the last chapter. Uh, This is called Hermes by Alan Moore and John Tottleman. Miracle Man and Miracle Woman are transported to another galaxy by the Keys. Or how are we saying that, Kais? Kais, it's it's Q-I-S, it's all the aliens. (laughs) Yes, the Kais' initial plan was to exterminate superhumans on Earth. The birth of Winter, a, quote, natural superhuman, put a crimp in those plans. The Kais confer with their rivals, the Warpsmiths. Now, both races decide to send proxies to Earth as Watchers. Miracle Man and Miracle Woman are the representatives of the Kais, and two folks named Aza Chom and Fon Muda will represent the Warpsmiths. Uh, at, back at home, Liz Moran decides to leave her husband and her baby this very issue. I don't really blame her, uh, frankly, with what's going on. Be like, right? enough is enough, okay? Yeah, you, you can, I added up the here. <laughs> uh, now, Johnny Bates continues fighting off the kid Miracle Man alter ego, but you got to wonder how much longer can he push him off? Ooh. I mean, really, I mean, Liz is like, look, I know I had a baby and everything I love, but this is crazy now. It's like some alien prophecy. I'm, I'm going to the bar. Yeah, anyway. Can't, can't uh, have her parents over. Can't have yeah, Exactly. Yeah, she can't have anyone over. So they, yeah. the, whole, whole, the life is not great. So uh, Miracle Man number 14, that was April 1988 cover. After a five-month gap from the previous issue, we get Pantheon by Alan Moore and John Tottleton. We meet Fire Drake, Huey Moon, a super human. The only black member of Miracle Man's cabinet, uh, not related to the Gargunza experiments, more like born this way, kind of like the X-Men, kind of a born mutant sort of fella. Uh, Winter leaves Earth to join the Kais to be further educated on what and who she is. Miracle Man kills Mike Moran, sort of like kind of committing suicide by refusing to ever turn back to that uh, human character. And elsewhere, Johnny Bates finally gives in to Kid Miracle Man. Yes, leading right to Miracle Man number 15. It's November 1988, a seven-month wait for the climax. Uh, this is Nemesis by Alan Moore and John Tidelman, and this is basically the issue of Miracle Man, uh, one of the most violent issues of a comic to be released at the time. Also, bar none, the hardest of this run to find, the original run, that is. Uh, this issue regularly sells for the in the three-figure range at shops and online. Wow. This is a, this is a tough one. I, I've only seen it in real life like two or three times, and it's always been huh. a little bit outside my price range. I bet, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, Kid Miracle Man, finally freed, rampages through London, and it is very, very gruesome. Uh, Miracle Man and Kid Miracle Man get to fighting. Those Warp Smith watchers we met earlier, they get involved and they teleport Kid Miracle Man inside a steel girder. Uh, when Kid Miracle Man changes back into Johnny Bates, Miracle Man actually goes through with killing him this time around. You remember he spared him last time. Yeah. This time he, he goes ahead and, and does the deed. He was like, sorry, this is so many months later. You know, <laughs> thanks, thanks to these delays, we're in a harder, colder time now. And it's yes. time to. Uh, yeah, I think you only like three uh, comics with three-digit prices when there's a decimal point after the yes. first digit, right? Or the, <laughs> even before it, you like that, too. Sometimes. Uh, Miracle Man number 16, December 9, 1989, cover date. 13 months in the making for this epilogue. Well, let me tell mm-hmm. you, this is not, this has not been a lot of fun to wait for coming out. <laughs> uh, Olympus by Alan Moore and John Tottleman. Uh, Miracle Man's pantheon now rule over a utopian Earth. Miracle Man and Miracle Woman become lovers, and the Warpsmiths have a funeral orgy. Winter mm-hmm. returns from the Kais to rejoin her father. 
And the epilogue ends with an image of the Olympus Fortress from which Miracle Man rules. Uh, Moore's run on the Miracle Man title ended with issue number 16 and the reigns, and more importantly for our story, his own ownership share on the property. More on that in a bit. <laughs> Moore's ownership of this. Uh, they were handed to Neil Gaiman. Moore was becoming suspicious over the ownership of the character by this point. He didn't see Skin as a terribly trustworthy guy that's does Skin, even on his best day. And he recalls telling Neil, This may well be a poison chalice. I've got no idea who owns Marble Man. For all I know, it might still be owned by Mick Anglo. Hmm. Now, Neil's run with Mark Buckingham on art would last until issue number 24, August 1993 cover. Issue 25 was completed, but never published by Eclipse. And uh, as of this recording, never published at all. Yeah. Uh, now, this is because Eclipse went bankrupt. They ceased operations in 1994 and filed for bankruptcy in 1995. The final Eclipse publication was their spring 1993 catalog, which would include a bibliography of, of their entire tenure as a publishing house. Now, we'll get into the game in Buckingham run here. The first arc, The Golden Age, was written with an anthology approach. When asked why, Neil would say, two reasons. One, which was... Uh, which was terror-feeling like the idea of taking over Miracle Man was one that filled me with fear. The other reason was the Golden Age allowed him to, quote, world-build and establish what was to come in the subsequent The Silver Age and The Dark Age arcs. Right, well, so far so good. That all, that all sounds well and good. Sure. Neil was a pretty busy fella around this time, as I even recall. Cat mm-hmm. uh, says, Cat uh, Ironwood says, Neil had a lot of lateness problems. The quality of writing was just as good. It's just that he was overcommitted to other projects for other companies, and he put us last, which was unfair. Before we get to the game in Buckingham run proper, Total Eclipse. Mm. A company-wide crossover, sort of in the vein of Crisis at Infinite Earths, but only for the Eclipse universe. Written by, hey, how about that? It was Marv Wolfman, the very <laughs> author of Crisis at Infinite Earths himself. Uh, a series of five prestige format books with cover dates from May 1988 through Mark, uh, sorry, through April 1989. Neil Gaiman and Mark Buckingham's first Miracle Man work, a story called Screaming, would be seen in Total Eclipse number four. Mm-hmm. Now we pick up with Miracle Man number 17. They didn't restart it at number one. Uh, this is, uh, yeah, right? Uh, June 1990 cover date. It's called A Prayer and Hope by Neil Gaiman and Mark Buckingham. This is book four of Miracle Man, The Golden Age. It starts right here. We follow four pilgrims as they travel through the utopian Olympus to meet with Miracle Man. It's basically an examination of the new religious philosophy of this utopian world. Uh, We jump to Miracle Man number 18, August 1990, Skin Deep by Gaiman and Buckingham. Here we meet John Galloway, a windmill tender who once had an affair with Miracle Woman. We learn that he was only in love with Miracle Woman due to her perfection. And when he, and when he found himself uh, unable to love her in her human alter ego, Avril Lear. Uh, we have a backup story here that features children discussing Kid Miracle Man, giving the distinct impression that he, or at least his spirit, managed to live on. Then Miracle Man number 19, November 1990, cover date, Notes from the Underground by Gaiman and Buckingham. Clones, clones, clones. We learned of there being nearly two dozen clones of Andy Warhol inside Olympus, and also that there had been several failed attempts at, attempts at cloning a cooperative Dr. Gagunza. 
Miracle Man number 20, March 1991 cover, Winter's Tale by Gaiman and Buckingham. Now, this is a story about Miracle Man's frozen sperm and its ability to impregnate women with miracle babies of their own. Very good. Uh, Yes, uh, Miracle Man number 21. We have July 1991 cover date. Spy Story by Gaiman and Buckingham. This is sort of a take on that old... uh, that old British show, The Prisoner, yeah. uh, had, had it occurred in you know, Miracle Man's Utopian Olympus. Uh, we get a backup here, and it's just a reprinting of the Gaiman and Buckingham screaming story from Total Eclipse number four. That's cool. You get to at least get them all together. But uh, yeah. seems a little more scattered. Seems a little more, yeah, like like I think anthology, like uh, Gaiman had described. This is really just kind of a smattering of stories about the Miracle Man universe. Yes. Uh, Miracle Man number 22, August 1991, cover date. Carnival by Gaiman and Buckingham. Carnival is the holiday celebrated each year commemorating the defeat of Kid Miracle Man. All the characters Gaiman has introduced to this point attend the festivities in London, wrapping up his first book of Miracle Man stories. Worth mentioning throughout this book, there were backup pages including all the re- re- included uh, that all titled Retrieval which explores Miracle Man's attempts at bringing young Miracle Man back to life. Not Kid Miracle Man, young Miracle Man, the one who died in the bomb of 1963. Mm-hmm. So don't get confused, folks. I sure am. <laughs> yes, young, young Miracle Man is the good one. Okay. Uh, kid, kid is the bad one. Okay, that Kid's the bad. Now we have a Miracle Man Apocrypha. This is a three-issue miniseries that bridged the game in Buckingham Golden and Silver Age arcs. And this actually shipped almost monthly. Whoa. Uh, this ran from November 1991 to February 1992. There's more anthology stories uh, featuring the works of folks like Gaiman, Derek Robinson, or I'm sorry, Derek Robertson, Val Mayrick, Mark Buckingham, Alex Ross, Kurt Busick, James Robinson, Matt Wagner, Norm Brayfogle, and Kelly Jones, among several others. Now, the neatest part of this entire series is uh, issue number two's cover homage to uh, John Byrne's Man of Steel number one, and issue three's homage to uh, Fantastic Four number five, which is the first appearance of Doctor Doom, and instead of Doom, it's Gargunza. And I think that uh, the reason that these came out more, you know, closer to something on time is that so many people were involved. So many people were, able were to, in like, it, you know, yes. get someone else to <laughs> fill in the pages there, but. Uh... All right, so Miracle Man number 23, June 1992, cover date. Here's The Secret Origin of Young Miracle Man by Neil Gaiman and Mark Buckingham. Nearly a year later, we enter book five, The Silver Age, that is the still, as of this recording, not yet completed story. Story picks up in the far-flung future of 2003. Did people have flying cars by then? Oh, I don't know. It's, it's too far to figure out. I figure <laughs> the Cubs have got to win the World Series by then. Oh, twice. Uh, <laughs> young Miracle Man, as has been detailed in the retrieval backups, has returned to the living and is trying to adapt on this new world. He couldn't understand the inclusion of a black man to Miracle Man's pantheon. He also didn't dig Miracle Woman's manner of dress. So he's kind of old-fashioned. and uh... Stuck in the 60s, we'll say. Yes. <laughs> now we have Miracle Man number 24, June 1993. Came out 14 months later. That's a gap, isn't it? That's a big one. <laughs> now the story's called When Titans Clash by Nick Gaiman and Buckingham. A celebration is held marking the return of Young Miracle Man, uh, which led to a discussion on how and why Kid Miracle Man wound up going bad. Also, there's a weird scene where a Miracle Woman coerces Miracle Man and Young Miracle Man to kiss each other? 
Okay. Uh, it really appears to uh, tick off young Miracle Man, though. Miracle Man himself doesn't appear all that into it either. Seems weird. Just, just randomly wants him to give a smooch or... Yeah, it, it feels kind of like a commentary on that perceived latent homosexuality of superheroes and their sidekicks uh, during the Golden and Silver Ages. All right. Fair enough, I guess. If you recall <laughs> from our discussion of the Comics Code Authority, Seduction of the Innocent and Dr. Frederick Wortham, it seems many folks have conflated what was actually written with Wortham's outright referring to Batman and Robin as a gay couple, which we go into pretty detailed and show that he did not do that. Uh, that was way back in episode two of Weird Comics History, by the way, available in the archives. Uh, Wortham never referred to Batman and Robin as being gay, but said their closeness may foment and embolden feelings in a reader if they were already predisposed. And it's really clear. Like, if you to our episode, yeah. you'll see he was not... He didn't say it would turn someone gay, but no. those, you know, proclivities might be aroused. Sure. Uh, but why let history get in the way of a good narrative, though? We never have let <laughs> mm-hmm. that happen before, so. <laughs> uh, and that's that. Eclipse was in financial turmoil, and the head honchos, Cat Ironwood and Dean Mullaney, were in the, pro- in the midst of divorcing. A note in number 24's letters column promises speedy delivery of number 25, <laughs> but it was never to come at all. Uh, although it's allegedly fully completed, it has never seen publication to this day, and worth noting, number 26 was also allegedly partially completed by this point. Yes. <laughs> now, with the story portion out of the way, let's yeah. get into the legal ease here. Uh, now, this is after Neil Gaiman took over, and uh, we're going to take a look at the Eclipse Agreement in, relatively bre- in relative brevity here. Uh, the writer obligation, so this is what Gaiman was to deliver. He was supposed to supply script material of 26 pages of Miracle Man for 18 issues of the series. It was basically two years publication at nine issues per year. The writer's compensation, he gets a $60 per page advance and royalties of 3% of the cover price on each copy copy sold up to and including 50,000 copies. So, uh, and also after that, 4% of the cover for copies in excess of 50,000 and also the reprints. Uh, cover price for the book was $1.95 USD, so Neil was getting 5.8 cents per copy sold in royalties. Now, the important part and the maddening part. Ownership of trademarks and copyrights. <laughs> Section 3A of the agreement acknowledges that the writer retains and is the sole and exclusive owner of all copyrights in and to the stories. Writer acknowledgement as copyright holder would be included in every issue. Section 3B gets into the nitty-gritty and states that, of the Miracle Man property, Eclipse shall own two-thirds, while the writer, Gaiman, and the artist, Buckingham, shall jointly own one-third. And we will be coming back to this time and again in a bit. Yeah, this, this is where things <laughs> get dicey, everyone. Uh, according to former Eclipse comic sales manager Bo Smith, Miracle Man was Eclipse's most consistent top-selling book. Not always number one, but steadily at the top of their charts. Speaking of Bo Smith, after Eclipse folded, he would become the executive director of publishing for Todd McFarlane Productions. So, uh, during his time at Eclipse, Bo Smith was put on point for some of their non-sports cards we were mentioned earlier. Those, you know, serial killers and dictators and whatever else. Among those sets was to be one spotlighting famous comic book creators and he was to make arrangements with the creators for use of their likenesses. At the time, Todd was getting ready to wrap up his Spider-Man run and move off to greener, in every sense of the word, a ching, pastures, and Bo says, 
We had a huge list of people to call, and when it was time to call Todd McFarlane, I saved him for last. I thought, let me save the guy for last, because this guy's going to be a prick. Uh, it turns out they hit it off pretty well, though, Bo continues. I told him I saved him for last. I thought he would be a prick, and he goes, most people think I am. Again, this is during the time where Todd and the boys were concocting the company that would become Image. Bo recalls Todd bending his ear from time to time about the sales side of things, including distribution and retail. Bo would moonlight for Todd during Eclipse's final days and came full-time a bit later. So, why are we mentioning Todd? I don't know. Why would we bring this guy up? Well, in 1996, Todd McFarlane, again, the very same fellow who co-founded Image Comics, created Spawn and launched that adjectiveless Spider-Man, the first issue of which sold to over 2 million copies. The same fellow purchased the intellectual assets of Eclipse Comics, which one might assume included the only one anyone might want, Miracle Man. Uh, now, the whole shebang, according to the Comics Journal, th- this number is, uh, when you research this, you get several different numbers for what he paid for it, but uh, uh-huh. the Comics Journal uh, says it set him back 25 Gs, wow. which, if you look at it, it's a bargain when you consider that this is the very same man who would spend $2.6 million on a baseball just two years later. Yeah, we're talking about 93, 94 now, right, about? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, yeah, he's they're, they're flush with cash over there. Absolutely. Uh, now, he beat out eight other bidders at Stony Point, New York auction on February 29th, 1996. Uh, for Eclipse, that is not the baseball. Uh, <laughs> according to the Comics Journal, the auction included all copyrights, trademarks, characters, and other intellectual properties, along with the remaining trading cards, film negatives, and publishing agreements held for Eclipse Comics by the court. In a letter penned by Lisa M. Bresky Sachs on behalf of Jerry L. Sapir, attorney at law, to Terry Fitzgerald, Terry is a friend and professional associate of Todd's, McFarland's $25,000 offer was accepted. Uh, the letter mentioned certain publishing rights issues with the titles New Wave and Airboy. Now, we only mention that because any potential Miracle Man rights, Michigas, is conspicuous by its absence. You'd figure if there was any question of Miracle Man's ownership, it would have been divulged here. But sometimes, if you don't want to answer those questions, you don't bring the subject <laughs> up, right? Let's not broach that, they might have thought. Yes. Uh, sticking with the Comics Journal, they reported the following. The most valuable piece of the purchase may prove to be the United States Patent and Trademark Office Registration, number 1,447,456 of the highly acclaimed series of Miracle Man. Also presented to the bidders as part of the auction was the written agreement on trademarks and copyrights for Miracle Man between Eclipse publisher Dean Mullaney and Neil Gaiman, executed April 1st, 1989. Something about that date just seems so funny, Chris. Uh, The physical assets Todd bought, quote-unquote, included, from a difficult-to-read handwritten list, uh, and remember, there was a flood Eclipse had suffered not too long before this, so a lot of this is incomplete. Stuff. This, this is like, I think, literally what they had left. Yeah. Uh, what they could sweep up, you know what I mean? That kind of thing. This is the stuff behind the water heater. Uh, 190 copies of Velocity Number 3. Mm-hmm. 59 <laughs> copies of Hobbit, Book 1, and 752 sets of foul baseball cards. 80 copies of Parts Unknown Number 2. 23 sets of the Friendly Dictator trading cards. Oh, that's where they were. Okay. <laughs> yes. 13 copies of Batman and Me, the Bob Kane autobiography. But you probably only want to hear about Miracle Man, though, right? You, don't want, you Only I wanted to know about those Friendly Dictator <laughs> trading cards. So uh, we'll go into the Miracle Man content 
There was the Young Miracle Man file. Miracle Man number 13, cover only. Miracle Man number 17, cover only. Miracle Man Rock of Eternity. Miracle Man number one, cover and additional cover. Miracle Man number seven, the backup file. Miracle Man number six, the backup file. Miracle Man 3D number one, cover and film with partial damage. Miracle Man number 22, that was the cover and promo for it. Miracle Man Films, Saturday Morning Features, Young Miracle Man, and The Moon of Doom, and Excited Guards. Eh? Well, these are apparently, this isn't a cartoon show, this is uh, apparently stories from Miracle Man 3D number one. Oh, I would like to see that for a Saturday morning cartoon, <laughs> uh, especially the birth scene. Anyway, uh, Miracle Man <laughs> Collected number one and two, Miracle Man Collection Apocrypha, and Miracle Man number three and cover. Miracle Man 23, cover and film. Miracle Man number 18, cover and film. And uh, I think we'll leave it at that. We'll just but go right back to the story. But you see, it really is a smattering of stuff. Yes. Just yes like it's not a full thing. Various related items to printing some Miracle Man is what he got, basically. <laughs> now, uh, Bo Smith states that Todd had an affection for both the Eclipse properties and Eclipse co-founder Dean Mullaney. And he wanted to ensure that all of the work was treated with dignity. Todd is quoted as telling the Comics Journal that he didn't buy the properties with the interest in republishing the old Eclipse titles. He says, Some of the stuff is worth reprinting, but for the most part, I will need to bring a 90s look to it. I might have access to 100 books, but only do something with three or four of them. Todd McFarlane Productions released a one-shot retailer incentive called Total Eclipse No. 1 with July with a July 1998 cover date. Not to be confused with that five-part prestige format, Marv Wolfman written miniseries that we discussed a bit earlier, the crossover thing. This is a different Eclipse, Total Eclipse. Uh, this bugger had a print run of only 1,000 copies. Goes for about 50 bucks on eBay if you're interested, though, so it's not too tough to get your yeah. hands on. Uh, in it, Todd reintroduced several of the Eclipse properties, including Airboy, Black Terror, and The Heap. But not Miracle Man, outside of a tiny promo image. And actually, I know Airboy and The Heap are old Golden Age properties. Probably, yep. Black, probably Black Terror, too, if I had to guess. Wouldn't surprise me, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Todd had a bigger plan for Miracle Man and wanted to reintroduce him as part of Spawn's universe. Boy, this is it. Now we're really getting into the maze, <laughs> folks. I'm telling you. Uh, <laughs> Hell Spawn number six. That was a February 2001 cover date written by Brian Michael Bedness with art by Ashley Wood ends with a reporter writing a letter to the mayor of New York, which he signs off with the name Mike Moran. Hmm. Let's put a pin in that one for now, because over here is where it's going to get even stickier. <laughs> yes, now this Mike Moran was never be, would never be revealed as being Marvel Man, Marvel Man obviously, but we will get there. Uh, now, folks believe this to be due to the Neil Gaiman legal hubbub, which, again, we will get to, trust us. However, in the 2001 interview, Bo Smith claims the following. And remember, this was 2001, and this is being included as apocryphal completionism and as an example of just how confusing yep. this entire thing was. Bo Smith says, Eclipse owns a controlling interest in Miracle Man. If Todd wanted to do Miracle Man, he could do it anytime he wanted, just the way it is. But Todd's not going to do that. That's mainly because what he wants to do, he wants to do right. Now, the story is kind of, sort of corroborated in that same 1996 article from the Comics Journal, where it was announced that Todd bought the booty. Uh, remember, we're going to go back to the split ownership here. First, we have Alan Moore transferred his portion of the Miracle Man trademark, which is one-third of the property, to Neil Gaiman and Mark Buckingham when they took over the book. 
The official documentation was signed by all parties on March 7th, 1989. Still with us. <laughs> okay. Now, it further stated that Gaiman and Buckingham would, quote, in their turn, pass on their part of the trademark to their successors on the strip, or, failing that, return the trademark to Alan Moore to keep or pass on as he sees fit. Wow, it's like the hot potato, right? Just mm-hmm. pass, pass that trademark around. Are you still following us, folks? <laughs> Now, uh, in mentioning the Eclipse letter, the agreement with Eclipse then stipulated that the company owned two-thirds, while Gaiman and Buckingham jointly owned the remaining one-third of, quote, all the characters and the stories and all the trademarks in and to the title Miracle Man, which is where we stand when Todd comes along. Todd claimed to have contacted Buckingham about the rights pretty much straight away and was confident that they would be able to work something out as of the purchase per Todd. This is Neil's court right now. We don't think he meant, like, court as in court of law, but, you know, we will get to some of that that. very soon as well. (laughs) Uh, McFarlane Toys released an exclusive Spawn Miracle Man 2-pack of 4-inch action figures for the 2003 San Diego Comic-Con. The Miracle Man used here was a 4-inch PVC replica of the 12-inch resin statue McFarlane released earlier that year. Oh, yeah. Uh, Todd really had released a 12-inch resin statue of Miracle Man <laughs> earlier that year. For God, you know, he so much toy work, it's easy to forget. Uh, the PVC 2-pack goes for under $50 on Amazon, which the wor- in the world we live today, when it comes to the price of toys, really isn't even for brand new toys. It's not really that bad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the 12-inch statue goes for about 100 bucks. Also, really not too bad for a, for a resin statue in today's market. Absolutely. Now, we did mention the McFarlane versus Gaiman legal hubbub above, and uh, we'll uh, we'll expand upon that a little bit, or a lot. Um, (laughs) It's really a ton of background to begin. Yeah, it's going to take us into the next episode to get through all this stuff, folks. (laughs) Absolutely. We're going to start by discussing Spawn Number 1. (laughs) (laughs) This was released with a May 1992 cover date and would sell 1.7 million copies. I'm surprised surprised we're not starting with more fun Number 1, you know, to take it all the way... (laughs) Why not? Very beginning. <laughs> now, we, uh, you can check out uh, Cosmic Treadmill episode number 68 from December 10th, 2017 in the archives for our long-form discussion of Spawn number one. Now, this was a wizard hot book and would fuel the speculatory fires for many a wide-eyed, quote, investor. Uh, now, the book was acclaimed for the art and presentation. However, like many of its contemporaries, derided for its weak writing. From Neil Gaiman's own testimony, he says... When Image started, they were getting a lot of stick from fans and from the comics press for being illiterate garbage, which is probably a polite way of putting things they were saying about the comics, chiefly those written by Rob Liefeld. We would have to assume that the judge followed this up with, what is a Rob Liefeld and how is this relevant? Yeah, really? (laughs) (laughs) I guess he's, I guess Gaiman's just stuck in the comics bubble, man. I just want to throw a little dig at Rob Liefeld. While we're here, (laughs) let's take our time to throw a dart at him. Uh, and about Todd in particular, Neil would say, I remember somebody coming up to me in the DC offices showing me Spider-Man number one, which Todd drew and which people thought was very funny because the writing demonstrated that the person writing it had never written anything before, which actually very well might have been true. Uh, he would later state, by the time he got to Spawn, he was, you know, approaching competency and, you know, was competent. In an attempt to stifle complaints about the writing in Spawn, Todd McFarlane would invite several top-tier or at least respected writers to provide scripts. Among those writers were Alan Moore on issue number 8, that was March 1993 cover date, Dave Sim on issue number 10, 
uh, May 93 cover date. Frank Miller on issue 11, June 93 cover date. And the fellow we're talking about now, Neil Gaiman on issue number 9, March 1993 cover date. And that's where we're going to have to leave it for now. Uh, Next time, we'll talk about how Neil Gaiman got involved with Todd and how it almost stopped any publication of Mick Anglo's characters, uh, Miracle or Marvel. Yeah, there's a lot to sift through here, folks. Uh, and, and a lot, and a lot of information that seems like, like almost like uh, the Rob Liefeld comment, to like, yeah, why a lot is that of inside important? baseball? Yeah, yeah, but it's it's going to be it's, it is important. The fact that Neil wrote this script uh, will prove to be one of Todd McFarlane's uh, bigger mistakes in a, in a sense uh, as yes. we go down the line into what happens to the Marvel Man slash Miracle Man property. But uh, you know, a lot of this is. To, to me, Chris, is basically like, uh, and you see this not just in comics, but a lot of industries, uh, you know, people talking legalese without being lawyers. They're, they're, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, not 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 necessarily like we are, but just like people are like, yeah, that's got to be legal. You know what I mean? It's like, you'd be surprised. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, Chris has all the rights. To, he's got to have all the rights to that. Oh, you'd be surprised. <laughs> uh, that's why you got to contact the lawyer, retain them, and uh, pick their brain, or, you know, often. That, that probably... Between that and insurance, you know, liability insurance are the two biggest hidden costs of any business, I'm sure, right? And it, uh, it, it really, uh, when, you, when we talked last time about uh, Stanley uh, getting that copyright on Captain Marvel and uh, how the cease and desist letter from Marvel to Des Skin was so important. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, big corporation just messing with the little guy. It's like, no, no, they're protecting themselves from any future problems. Absolutely. It's responsible yeah. ownership. We, we will add, we will totally see how that could come to bite you in the butt in the next episode <laughs> yeah, if, you, when, if you don't exactly. do that. But yeah, like if you were, there is, I think it's even, there's even a name probably in Latin that we don't know uh, <laughs> where, where a, a company is liable to pursue their own uh, trademarks and copyrights. And if they don't, they Fall aside, almost forfeiting them. Yeah, you you can almost uh, forfeit them in a lot of cases, Mm -hmm. unless your company is Walt Disney. But (laughs) uh, that of all being said, if you would like to uh, talk to us about, uh, you know, any of the things we've talked about this episode, maybe pick our brains for some poor, bad legal advice. We're not lawyers. I want to stay up front. Yeah, we'll we'll try to field the disclaimer. Try to field any questions you might have. Or talk about anything you'd like to talk about as usual. It's great to us about your experience with Marvel Man. Maybe you got these uh, Eclipse issues as they came out. You can tell us how you felt about the long delays in between each issue. Uh, you can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us over on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmic email history. Find us on Tumblr, cosmic email history.tumblr.com. We're on Twitter at cosmic T-mail, and I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. See our weekly writings about newer comics at weirdsciencedccomics.com and see Chris's daily writings on DC Comics at his personal blog, chrisisaninfiniteearth.com, where he reviews a different DC comic every single day of the week, now going on its, into its third year, I think, or something like this. Yep, we're, we're, going into, we're going into our 800th daily, uh, daily post. You were just blasting them, and uh, we've been talking about this for a while, and we still will for a couple of weeks more about your 100th. Action Comics rundown. I saw yes. you just did the one, the first one post crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, did yes, where it turned into a team up book. And you, yeah, exactly. When it started turning into the yeah, with the uh, eventually the weekly came out after that too, right? After that, that, yep. And then uh, you also did the two 
uh, opening up new 52. We're starting, you're starting to hit some tent poles, I feel like, you know, yeah. uh, here and there. I was so, saving those for the end, yeah. <laughs> that was, it's a good, a strong finish. You got to go check it out, folks. Uh, he's got pictures from the comics. He got advertisements. The commentary is bellissimo. It's Christmas on infiniteearth.com. Go take a look. Thank you. We also have our show site, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where every Sunday we update with our Cosmic Treadmill, and sporadically on Tuesdays we update with our Weird Comics That's History. Right. And uh, at least for the little while now, on Thursdays we're we're assembling little box sets, uh, mm. making it a little bit easier to traverse the archive. So if uh, if you wanted to check out our Crisis coverage, we've got all five episodes of that, plus the Weird Comics History on the DC Pre-Crisis Multiverse in one easy to find or easy to, you know, <laughs> easy to read back. Easy to read, <laughs> easy, easy to handle. Also, it's a good place because we usually, we often put extra stuff there, you know, pictures yep. and uh, stuff related to what we're talking about. So it's, I think, I think it's a better place to go find our podcast. Then Podbean, and I'm sticking Probably. with that. Yeah. <laughs> you can also find us on YouTube by searching YouTube for Weird Comics History, all one word. Yep, until we get uh, those thousand subscribers, folks. So be sure to subscribe <laughs> and whatever rate, review, hit the slap the thumbs up button, rickety do. I don't know what to, what else you got to do. Uh, hit a yeah. bell. I don't you want know. five five stars, right? Is that something like that this? Still give, thing? Us, <laughs> give us five stars, slap a like, subscribe, whatever, all that. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I think that's all we got for him for now, Chris. You got anything else for him? Oh, that'll that'll do it for uh, for this week. Well, until next time, folks. I want you to keep it weird historically. Please. My friends feel it's their appointed duty. They keep trying to tell me he. History episode number 29. My name is Reggie. My name is Chris. Uh, we like to bring you some weird comics history sporadically on Tuesdays, although recently not as sporadically. You mm-hmm. can find us over on chrisandreggie.podbean.com and pick us up on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. 
Yes, and this week we are going to uh, wrap up our three-week exploration on the mysteries of Marvel Man. This time we're talking about when he went from Miracle back to Marvel again. Uh, and we'll do our best to recap the last two episodes in case you're joining us fresh here. Um, let's see, we start with Captain Marvel. Captain Marvel and his related comics were uh, created and published in the United States by Fawcett Comics. This was from 1940 to 1953. Uh, these comics were licensed for reprint in the UK by L. Miller and Sons Limited. When the original Captain Marvel comics dried up, they would uh, they that's L. Miller and Sons would hire Mick Anglo to create new similar characters for publication, so they could just slide them in and take Captain Marvel's place. Mm-hmm. And so Marvel Man and the Marvel Man family. Were created. Marvel Man would end its run in 1959, and L. Miller and Sons would liquidate their assets. Years later, the UK Warrior magazine, this is an anthology of comics that began in 1982, they purchased the rights to Marvel Man, specifically so Alan Moore could write his deconstructed take on the Marvel Man character. Yeah, and we go through every issue in the other episodes, so if you mm-hmm. want a more expanded version, you definitely should give them a listen. Uh, after that, Marvel Comics sent a cease and desist letter to Warrior, which they more or less rejected, and then <laughs> ceased operations for unrelated reasons. In the United States, Eclipse Comics became part owners of the Marvel Man license. Beginning in 1985, they reprinted Warrior Magazine's Marvel Man as Miracle Man to avoid complications with Marvel Comics. In 1986, Eclipse added new stories penned by Alan Moore. Then Neil Gaiman and Mark Buckingham would come in and produce eight issues of their own that began in 1990, and that's, uh, that ran until Eclipse Comics folded a couple years later. Now, at this point, the deal for Marvel Man changed. Eclipse would own two-thirds of the character, the stories, all the good stuff, while Gaiman and Buckingham owned the remaining third. This is a joint between the two of them. Uh, originally owned by Alan Moore, who had forwarded his rights to the new creative team, and he suggested that every creative team would pass forward when they gave up the book. Uh, then Todd McFarlane of Image Comics came along and bought Eclipse Comics' assets. This is 1996, and he did so with the specific notion to revive Miracle Man. He'd promote the character and even put out an action figure and a statue, but the right the issue of the rights was about to rear its ugly head. Yeah, so finally we're gonna talk about Neil Gaiman, give a very brief bio of the man. Very brief. Because he is very much worth an episode of his own, but probably under different auspices, I think. We'll do a full, more full one. Uh, his name is Neil Richard McKinnon Gaiman, born on November 10th, 1960, in Portchester, Hampshire, England. He was a voracious reader from the age of four and was affected by many of the usual suspect books. Seems like he just might have written all of his own biographical information available online. Very specific uh, stuff. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but we can, we can guess it would be The Invisible Man, right? It would be H.G. Oh, Wells, yeah. Yeah, Ray Bradbury, sure. Uh, around the age of 20, he would contact his favorite science fiction writer, R.A. Lafferty, and would receive some literary advice in return. In the early 1980s, Gaiman took to journalism, becoming a regular writer for the British Fantasy Society. He'd eventually be published in Imagine Magazine in May 1984. It was a short story called Feather Quest. Also in 1984, he'd pick up a copy of Alan Moore's Swamp Thing while waiting for a train. He claims that Moore's writing had an incredible impact on his own. Also in 1984, Gaiman would publish his first novel. It was called Ghastly Beyond Belief, and it was a biography of Duran Duran. In the interest of brevity, we're going to hop ahead to to Gaiman's comics work. Uh, In addition to Miracle Man, Neil would contribute strips for uh, 
2080's Future Shocks, which uh, we're saying a lot in this series. Yeah. Uh, he, along with Dave McKean, would put together a trio of graphic novels. We got Violent Cases, we got Signal to Noise, and also the tragical comedy or the comical tragedy of Mr. Punch. Uh, he would eventually gain the attention of DC Comics, where he would be offered to do whatever he wanted for his own limited series, and he chose Black Orchid. They were kind of giving away those uh, deals to, to people of a certain dialect of those days, weren't they? <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, uh, DC editor Karen Berger took notice, and she was impressed. And so she offered Neil the opportunity to put a new spin on the concept of The Sandman. You might have heard of it. Yeah, that one might have made some waves <laughs> in the uh, in the comics world. Now, uh, Gavin and McFarlane would meet first meet at Dragon Con in Atlanta, Georgia, during the summer of 1992, where they were both guests of honor. They did not discuss business or working together at this point, though. When it came time for Todd to extend the invitation, Gaiman was a bit trepidatious to ask him to write for, I guess, Marvel Man or any, eventually other things. Uh, Neil says, from my perspective, there were a number of downsides to working with Todd and to working with Image. They were, despite their obvious commercial success, the industry laughing stock at the time, which meant that by working with them, by putting Mr. McFarlane in a position where he could use as his sole advertisement for Spawn 9, a black page with the word Gaiman written on it, that was something that was lending him cachet, and I had to decide whether or not I was willing to do that. During the initial conversations, Todd did not mention money, which... According to Gaiman, was a wise move. More from Neil, he said, What he talked to me about was showing unity with creators, sticking it to the big companies, complete creative freedom, not signing anything away, and just being. And Todd was finally able to persuade Neil. Uh, Neil recalls, When I was still wavering, he also said, Okay, you know, I think I've got Alan Moore now, uh, where I've got Alan, and I think David Sim and Frank Miller are going to say yes. Come on, it's the big four. You can't be left out. And those were the things he used to persuade me. When Neil agreed to script to issue nine, the, the contract between he and McFarlane was oral, which is to say, not in writing. Mm. Duh. <laughs> now, this oral agreement made no mention of copyright or compensation. McFarlane, however, did assure Gaiman that he would treat him, quote, better than the big guys, and uh, we presume that means Marvel and DC. Yeah. Neil recalls a conversation he had with his agent, Marilee Heifetz, when he sent her her share of the loot, which was 10%. He says, she phoned me up and said, where's the contract that goes along with this? And I said, there is no contract. Todd has said he's going to treat me better than anyone else would with a contract. Yeah, and you can almost just picture the camera panning in her face, like, <laughs> looking, dun, dun, looking dun. dead at the camera, like, uh-oh. <laughs> uh, without a paper trail, it's difficult to deduce whether this better treatment was in reference to rights or compensation. Well, we can discuss the rights issue since it's where it's all headed anyway. Yeah, okay, all right. We were uh, kind of dancing around getting into the nitty-gritty of it, but let's, <laughs> let's, let's discuss compensation first. Neil Gaiman received $100,000 for his work on the million-plus selling Spawn Number 9. Gaiman testified that this amount is what he would expect from Marvel or DC had he taken a work-for-hire assignment from them. Damn, Damn. that is some <laughs> dough, boy. Uh, then and now, let me tell you. Uh, Absolutely. Worth noting, he also received a check for $10,000 simply for agreeing to do the work, and another $10,000 for, for the acceptance of the finished work, which he mentions was less than his advance for DC for Black Orchid or Black Hawk Kid, as we have talked about before, but that's a yes. different 
Neil Gaiman story. Uh, <laughs> for completionist's sake, and to perhaps see a pattern of behavior for Todd, each of the four guest writers received checks for $100,000. That's to say, a flat $100,000. A nice round number, no calculations, no extra paperwork. You dig? Just easy breezy chunk of loot, you know? <laughs> uh, and there were talks of extra monies when newsstand figures came in, because that was still something in play back then. Uh, but that was never followed up on. Yeah, we didn't get much information on that. But uh, before we move forward, let's do a little bit of a refresher on Work for Hire. Uh, we've discussed it before, and we will very likely discuss it again. Uh, please remember, neither of us are lawyers, so we're going to do our best. Uh, we have a copyright acts here. We have the Act of 1909 and 1976. They both feature different definitions of work made for hire. In 1909, it said, In the interpretation and construction of this title, the word author shall include an employer in the case of works made for hire. So employer and works made for hire are not defined separately. 1965, the Ninth Circuit chimes in, and we get what they say. We believe that when one person engages another, whether as employee or as an independent contractor, to produce a work of an artistic nature, that in the absence of an express contractual reservation of the copyright in the artist— the presumption arises that the mutual intent of the parties is that the title to the copyright shall be in the person who at at whose insistence and expense that the work is done. Right. And so, uh, so whoever commissioned the work owns the work. Uh, and so in 1976, work made for hire is now defined as, one, a work prepared by an employee within the scope of his or her employment, or two, a work specifically ordered or commissioned for use as a contribution to a collective work, as a part of a motion picture or other audiovisual work, as a translation, as a supplementary work, as a compilation, as an instructional, instructional text, as a test, as answer material for a test, or as an atlas. If the parties expressly agree in a written instrument signed by them that the work shall be considered a work made for hire. So, per the 1976 definition, Neil's work for Todd McFarlane was not work made for hire. Added to that, without a written contract or agreement, Neil was technically never Todd's employee. Though, it ought to be mentioned that this can be rather nebulous when we take into account what it means to be an independent contractor. And not formally or explicitly defining employer or employment as it pertains to the provision, things can get dicey, and they did. <laughs> now, that's not really an issue here on the face of it, as argued in 1992's Schiller and Schmidt Incorporated versus Nordisco Corporation at all. Uh, copyright assignments must be in writing, and as we've mentioned, we don't got none of that here. No. Uh, in Gaiman's testimony, he stated, "Quote: He made it explicit that this was not work for hire." When asked to elaborate, he said, he, meaning Todd, said, you are not signing anything, but you are also not signing anything away. When this finally does get lawyer-heavy, Gaiman's lawyer would write that the characters created were not done on a work-for-hire basis, but, quote, pursuant to the terms of an oral agreement under which Mr. McFarlane agreed that Mr. Gaiman would be compensated on the same terms set forth in Mr. Gaiman's DC Comics Agreement deal dated August 1st, 1993, and uh, we'll get there. Yeah, so in Spawn number 9, that was March 1993, covered 8, Gaiman introduced three new characters— Medieval Spawn, Angela, and Cogliostro. Gaiman provided the script, McFarlane provided the art, um, leading Gaiman to believe that they were joint owners of the copyrights, but McFarlane did not share that opinion. 
Todd conceded that Gaiman was co-owner of Angela, however claimed full ownership of medieval spawn in Cagliostro. If we were to look at the indicia of spawn number nine, it would say that spawn and the spawn logo are copyright McFarlane. And at the risk of spoiling the end of our tale, if we look at the 2013 digital version, there's an added line which reads, Cogliostro, Medieval Spawn, and Angela at trademark and copyright 2013 Todd McFarlane and Neil Gaiman. But hmm. we'll get there. That's a, that's a <laughs> little bit of foreshadowing. Yes. Uh, in 1994, McFarlane approached Gaiman about doing a three-issue Angela miniseries, which would spin out from a story spur in Spawn number 26. December 1994 cover date. Gaiman was paid $3,300 for the bits he wrote in Spawn 26, an unknown amount that exceeded $30,000 for the Angela miniseries, December 1994 to February 1995 cover dates. McFarlane would get into the action figure business with Todd Toys, now McFarlane Toys. We've talked about that before. Uh, the first wave of, uh, probably in the Spawn episode, I would think. <laughs> probably. Uh, the first wave of Spawn figures included two versions of Spawn, a normal normal and hamburger head variant, <laughs> and the clown, overt kill, tremor, violator, and medieval spawn. Hmm. Neil Gaiman received a check for $20,000, which was designated as royalties, but Todd's record-keeping system wasn't, isn't so precise as to tell us for what. <laughs> Again, just a nice chunk of change. That's how he likes to do business. That's it. Uh, Neil would inquire and find out that it was for the action figure, and also note that he received co-creator credit on the package. Mm-hmm. Now, here's where it gets sticky-er-er-er. Uh, McFarlane set to publish a line of trade paperbacks to collect the Spawn series. Before doing so, Todd applied to the Register of Copyrights for copyright registrations on the books and the issues therein. And wouldn't you know it, he got them. And so, the books carry a copyright notice with the added bit, quote, all related characters are copyright by McFarlane. Uh, in late 1995, Neil Gaiman became concerned when the Angela action figure and trade paperback were released and he was no longer seeing royalties. He says, I was concerned that there were toys coming out, the Angela toys specifically, that I was getting no money for, and that either just published or were about to publish the Angela trade paperback, the first one, and I was concerned. There seemed to be no royalty provisions or anything, and I wanted to find out why I was no longer getting anything. Todd's people cited their not being business people for lack of payment. <laughs> that is a understatement, yeah. I would yeah, say. Sorry, we don't know business. What? You know? Uh, Todd would later say that his imprint didn't do royalties. Instead, he'd send people what he called love checks, which he said were more generous than any royalty could be. Neil remembers the love checks and didn't really trust them. He said the only way thing that things seemed to work was that one would get these checks and... They would say, here's a check for 800 bucks because Todd thinks you're a good guy. <laughs> Apropos of nothing, the Angela action figure made the cover of USA Today where it was referred to as the most inappropriate toy of the year, according to the American Family Association. Uh, you might as well coat the thing in chocolate uh, at this point, though. Folks yeah. were snapping the sucker up, and I'm going to say being on the cover of USA Today did not decrease the sales at all. Probably not. Probably not, right? Yeah, despite their, uh, you know, being against it. Their best efforts. You're right. Uh, Neil was also a bit worried that if McFarlane were ever to sell his company or somehow lose control of it, whoever was put in charge would have no paper trail to connect his creations to his bank account, Uh, which really is what this is all about, right? Uh, If I could just step outside of the the, uh, narrative for a second, you know, there's a lot of ways to look at this. Obviously, this is 
Chris put this all together, and he has done a terrific job of giving us the facts and as many quotes as probably you could you could stand jamming in this thing to like paint the picture. But uh, it's easy to look at this as being you know Neil is being a Neil Gaiman is, is being and, yeah. a jerk or whatever, or like he's a money money hungry. Mm-hmm. But it's like no, if you don't protect your work, you know what I mean. You if, lose if you it. If you do everything on a handshake, everything's great on a handshake and good times. But when times are bad. Suddenly, Mm -hmm. you know, things get different. Anyway, uh, so Neil said about this, uh, I was also concerned at this point that Todd might at this point. I still trusted Todd, and I was rather concerned that he might either sell to Mattel or get hit by a car or something, and that whoever took over from Todd would find no pieces of paper that had any kind of that listed what my share of what I created for him was. Now, he continues uh, on the uh, thread, if anything were to happen to the Todd Meister, he says, I don't trust your wife to send me love checks or to even know what they're for. I've created characters for you. You are using them. If you go on to do TV or movies and put them in, there's a whole other world out here that we have not yet gone into. Let's get this down on paper. And so during a powwow in Phoenix in 1996, Todd was insistent to keep their current arrangement going, and he attempted to convince Neil of his generosity. Neil recalls, I would, I would much rather have a written contract and $500 in royalties than $1,500 that was going to turn up on a whim and could end the moment you decide it's not convenient. So you're probably wondering by now, uh, when does this come back to Miracle Man? Oh, right. This whole thing was about uh, (laughs) Miracle Man the whole time, wasn't it? Oh, well, we're getting there right now. During this discussion, Todd mentions to Neil that he just purchased Miracle Man and asked Neil what he wanted to do with the character. Neil replied that he wasn't sure. Todd said his lawyers looked over the ownership arrangement between, between Alan Moore, Neil, and Mark Buckingham and assured him that he would honor Neil and Mark's 33% ownership. Neil said that Todd said, Well, I have had lawyers look over the agreement you made with Alan Moore, and I think we could break it, but obviously we're going to honor it. We're going to respect your third of Miracle Man, but we need to figure out what it is, and it may be a bargaining chip. And Neil was okay with that. Yeah. Now, the following year, on July 15, 1997, Neil wrote a letter to Todd. In it, he recounted the conversation that they had earlier that same day, and he states the following. That Todd agreed to use the, quote, figures they put together based on the DC deal for all future payments in regard to the use and sales success of the Angela character. Now, the DC deal appears to be just a blanket term at this juncture that describe what Gaiman would have been paid by DC Comics for similar or comparable work done. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Er, uh, Neil agrees to <laughs> Neil agrees to return Todd full ownership of the characters of Medieval Spawn and Cogliostro in exchange for Todd's alleged 66.6% controlling ownership share of Miracle Man. Wow. And again, uh, Gaiman and Buckingham shared that other third of the rights. Now, in addition, Todd would also have to hand over any Miracle Man inventory or film that he received via the Eclipse buyout. Oh, but I hope not those friendly dictator trading cards. <laughs> those those might have tipped the scales. Todd was like, no, I'm not giving those. First of all, I've opened all of them. <laughs> They're not worth anything. They're not worth it. I've been playing with them anyway. <laughs> now, now, this exchange was set to occur on August 1st. And until that date, that is to say the two weeks between the letter and the day, Todd would continue to pay Neil for the use of Medieval Spawn and Cogliostro based on that nebulous DC deal. Uh, Neil also mentions that he would be paid a $5,000 bonus, quote, essentially as an apology for having dragged this thing on so long. 
We're not done yet, folks. Uh, Neil also claimed exclusive right to the Angela character for future one-off stories both in and outside of Image Comics, wherein he would receive 100% of the revenue. Neil claims to have approached both Marvel and DC with ideas for one-offs. They, Marvel and DC, he says, were very enthusiastic at the time. And when they phoned Todd, nobody would put them through to him, and he didn't return calls. They're not businessmen, remember that. No. <laughs> uh, now, also, that there be best efforts made to ensure and depict that Angela was created by, quote, Neil and Todd in any of her future appearances in comics and out, because there was that Spawn animated series on HBO at the time, and it did feature Angela. And, of, you know, as expected, Neil wanted his share of that as well. Uh, now, perhaps uh, we're a bit too deep at the point at this point, but uh, all this hoopla for friggin' Angela? Really? Yeah. And it wouldn't go it wouldn't go away either, Chris. You know, that's the thing. We're not putting this to bed yet. Angela's still gonna be hanging around. It's gonna be large for a little uh, you know, yeah. It's like God, I wish I I wonder if Todd McFarlane's ever like, why did I ever hire this guy? Anyway. Uh Todd replied with a handwritten letter on spawn letterhead. He started with my dearest Neil and signed it Toddy and a smiley face. It's, very businesslike. Uh, in it, he agreed to terms, however, requested clarification on some of the royalty issues. Whether or not the royalty demanded should be divided by two for the artist, for example. Uh, whether the DC deal differentiated between creation of all new characters like Cagliostro and derivatives like Medieval Spawn. Now, Neil replied on, with a handwritten note of his own. Now, all of this correspondence was dated July 15, 1997, as mentioned. Now, Neil started his letter with... Dear Todd, hurrah! And ended it with Trella. I, I guess that's uh, good, right? I guess, right? That's, I'm not sure. that's optimistic. <laughs> yeah. uh, now, he clarified that the royalty that he quoted Todd was all for the writer. Uh, he also conceded that the derivative formula of uh, the, the derivative nature of Medieval Spawn, and he formulas down, him down to 50% of what he would get for Angela. All right. So, all's well that ends well, right? 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 Oh, come on, we're only about, what, 15, 14 hours into this thing? Yeah. It can't be over yet, right? No. Uh, now, following the exchange, and under the new terms of the post-July 34th deal, Todd paid Neil royalties on trade paperbacks that featured Angela, also foreign reprints, as well as a Randy Bowen-designed Angela statue. When totaled, the royalty checks sent over the next 18 or so months would amount to around $16,000, which is arguably a fair amount less than Todd's regular love checks. Yeah, for sure. Uh, on February 14th, Valentine's Day, 1999, Neil would receive a very special Valentine from the Toddster. In it, Todd announced he was rescinding any previous offers placed on the table. Offered Neil a take-it-or-leave-it deal. He'd have to relinquish all rights to Angela in exchange for all rights to Miracle Man. Hey, that's right, Miracle Man. That's right. That's what this, all about him. That's what this is all about. And we keep forgetting. And didn't Todd already give Neil Miracle Man? This doesn't seem like a fair trade, does it? Yeah, uh, we're, yeah we're getting over there. Uh, apropos of probably nothing, the following year, the character Angela would die in issue 100 of Spawn until <laughs> November 2000. So that could, could have been a moot issue, but it is comic books. So. Uh, he made sure to mention that all rights to Medieval Spawn and Cogliostro would remain with Todd McFarlane productions. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, we jump to a 2005 interview with UGO.com. In it, Todd would say, quote, with the lawsuit, Gaiman walked away from Miracle Man. I have the trademark for Miracle Man. No one wants to say it out loud, but that's what happened with the lawsuit. 
everyone was like, ha ha, he killed Todd. But unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on where you're standing, he had to pick some copyrights to some Spawn characters or pick Miracle Man. He didn't pick Miracle Man. Now, UGO follows up asking if, Todd, if Gaiman took Angela. Todd says, yeah, he took some Spawn stuff. For whatever reason, he walked away from Miracle Man, so now Miracle Man will be in the Image 10th Anniversary book. This is... 2005. Didn't didn't image didn't image launch in 1992? Yes, it's okay. Okay. Image works on its own schedule. They're not businessmen. Uh, Now, what what actually appeared in the image 10th anniversary book, which is sitting right on my shelf there, was an illustrated story, not not normal comic sequential art, and it didn't feature Miracle Man, but it featured the Man of Miracles. The who now? Soon, soon. All right. Uh, now, let's finally put a bow on Angela, though we can't promise. We'll mention her a time or two more. In fact, I'm pretty sure she pops up again at the very end of the story. On January 30th, 2012, NPR, that's uh, Minnesota Public Radio, reported that the McGaman McFarlane legal... That the Gaiman McFarlane legal dispute... <laughs> we call him McGaiman to put them together. Yeah. Uh, Gaiman McFarlane legal dispute was settled. Todd said, and Neil Gaiman and I had a resolution in our legal dispute, and as part of that, he ended up with the rights to Angela. Whatever Neil chooses to do with something he owns is at his complete and utter discretion. What Neil chose to do was sell the rights to the character to Marvel Comics. She would be integrated into the Marvel Universe at the very end of the 2013 Age of Ultron event. There was a crossover event which takes place on Marvel's Marvel Earth's 61112 and 26111. Her first Marvel appearance would be in Age of Ultron number 10, June 2013. Come to the 2014 Original Sin event, Angela would be revealed to be the long-lost sister of Thor. Hmm. And she would have at least one failed series since, and I'm not positive what's going on with her now. This is true. So, with her out of the way... Who owns or owned Miracle Man? Uh, you know, I gotta say, Chris, <laughs> we, given everything we've learned and you studied, well, I have no idea. <laughs> well, we're, we're gonna find out that we're in pretty good company of being confused okay. in a little while here. Uh, now, to answer this question, we're gonna have to go back to the summer of 1997. Todd and Neil have made nice, and uh, they've come to that agreement to trade the rights for Medieval Spawn and Cogliostro for Miracle Man. So far, so good. Now, Neil states that this exchange didn't quite go off without a hitch. It would take Todd's people, because Todd was on the road or something, a few days to get everything sorted. He would eventually get the physical Miracle Man film. However, it was incomplete. Neil suggests that during the Eclipse bankruptcy debacle, the company owners might have made some unscrupulous deals with some unscrupulous folks, uh, perhaps selling some of the Miracle Man film under the counter to a fella in Canada. Hmm, interesting. Uh, Todd Powell, Terry Fitzgerald, phoned Neil to inquire if he knew anything about Miracle Man Triumphant, which was an unpublished series written by Fred Burke with art by Mike Diodata Jr., Neil recalls there was one man who I mentioned before who was bidding for Miracle Man in the Eclipse auction and wanted to know if Mark Buckingham and I would be willing to continue the series if he got the rights to the share of Miracle Man that Mark and I did not have. And I said, sure, you know, we wanted to get on with it. You know, good luck in the auction, but he never sent me any film or anything like that. As of this recording, the pages for Triumphant recently surfaced and are available online. It's set to spin out the following the events of Miracle Man number 22, with the aftermath of the Yay Kid, Yay Kid Miracle Man is Dead carnival. 
Mm-hmm. Now, this leads to a bit of digging and unearthing some rumblings from the UK. And this is 1998, and we will uh, rejoin our old friend Dez Skin. He still he, he claims he might still own Marvel Man slash Miracle Man, meaning that Eclipse might not have actually ever owned anything <laughs> outside the publication rights. If that doesn't complicate matters enough, on October 27, 1997, Todd McFarlane filed trademark applications for the use of the Miracle Man name and also filed an intent-to-use application for the character. One, this is serial number 7537961, had to do with, quote, toys, namely action figures and the, access- the accessories therefore. Also another, serial number 7537919, with printed matter, namely comic books and posters. And then a third, serial number 7537920, with clothing, namely shirts, or athletic t-shirts, shirts, uh, athletic shirts, t-shirts, caps, and jackets. These would all be abandoned on February 26, 2000, then refiled as serial number 76283194 on November 13th, 2001, with abandonment on that on September 11th, 2012. Oh, it's so weird, man. Isn't it's, it? It's like, it's like everyone is diving for this ball, but nobody wants to play the actual game. You know, they, just, they, they all want to hold the football or whatever. <laughs> uh, for completest sake, the spawn trial blow by blow. This was argued January 5th, 2004, and decided February 24th, 2004. Uh, uh, Sorry, United States Court of Appeals, Seventh Circuit. Gaiman brought suit under the Copyright Act against McFarlane, seeking official declaration that he jointly owns copyrights for the characters with Todd. McFarlane intended to plead with a statute of limitations defense, but the jury said no go. So he instead pled with the defense of uncopyrightability, which uh, is apparently a word that actually exists. Uh, Not according to this uh, spell check, but yeah, apparently. The statute of limitations request went out the window because Gaiman's suit is not for copyright infringement, as the way he views it, other properties are of shared copyright. Doesn't sound like it would make much of a difference, but in a court of law, it does. Mm-hmm. Now, the uncopyrightable characters Todd lists are Cogliostro and Medieval Spawn. Angela, he concedes, at least during the trial, is a co-owned character. Now, the concept of uncopyrightability begs the question, if these properties cannot be copyrighted, how then does Todd claim ownership? Well, his argument is that they became copyrightable after subsequent stories were written about them. Uh, Now, the question of disparate comic production steps being uh, copyrighted is raised. The court documents attribute the creation of a finished comic book to four individual artists. You got the writer, the penciler, the inker, and the colorist. The poor letterer is uh, left out in the cold as usual. Now, it's the finished product that's copyrightable, not, say, just the coloring. Uh, this idea has dropped pretty quickly, but it you know makes for interesting food for thought, I suppose. Yeah, uh, it just shows really how complicated this, <laughs> this <laughs> what a mess, all right? gets. Yeah, uh, like, the, the you know, so the black and white gets one copyright, then the final <laughs> thing gets another one. Uh, Todd's second argument concerned the doctrine scenes of affair, which means scenes for action. Normally used in the theater, but also has a meaning in law. It is that a copyright owner can't prove infringement by pointing to features of his work that are found in the defendant's work as well, but that are so rudimentary, commonplace, standard, or unavoidable that they do not serve to distinguish one work within a class of works from another. This was added to the legal lexicon after James M. Cain attempted to sue Universal Pictures in 1942 over a scene in the film When Tomorrow Comes 
wherein a couple wait out a storm in a church which was too similar to a scene in his 1937 novel, Serenade. Judge Leon René Yankwich uh, ruled that there was no resemblance between the scenes other than the incidental scenes of fair. Now, in referencing this doctrine, McFarlane contends that his characters cre- that the characters created were initially stock in nature. It wasn't until later on when the characters were given defining and copyright facilitating, I suppose, characteristics. Per United States copyright law, uh, Nichols versus Universal Pictures Corp. 1930, even, uh, <laughs> copyright protection cannot be extended to the characteristics of stock characters in a story, whether it be a book, play, or film. Which is to say, one couldn't copyright a concept like drunken man or talking cat, you know, or witch. Right. It's, uh, you have to actually have some meat on those bones. Mm-hmm. Um now, the argument Todd raises is that Cogliostro is described by Gaiman as a, as an, quote, unexpectedly knowledgeable old wino. The counter-argument is that while Gaiman's initial de- description is fairly stock, once the character was given flesh, so to speak, under Todd's pencils and Neil's script, he became sufficiently distinctive to be copyrightable. So, I mean, this really all comes down to, you know, uh, literary and art. You know, criticism, essentially, you know what I mean? Like, it, <laughs> and, it, and a lot of semantics. <laughs> in, in a court of law. But literally, you know what I mean? It's like whether it's, it's you sure. kind of have to like look at it and squint and think like how derivative is you this? deconstruct the whole thing, you know, yeah. What, what constitutes a... When uh, did it become copyrightable? Yeah. When wasn't it? Yeah. It's very, very uh, crazy job to be a lawyer, <laughs> I think, sometimes. Well, anyway, that's Cogliostro sorted. So I guess now let's look at Medieval Spawn. But I have to say, Chris, on the face of it, <laughs> Sounds like a pretty derivative character, right? Uh, what did you say? <laughs> uh, the, like, uh, the name Medieval Spawn, though, is not a proper name, but a description. Uh, the court documents compare this to the Lone Ranger. The descriptor Medieval Spawn was added by McFarlane later on in issues Gaiman did not contribute to. The court believes Medieval Spawn to be copyrightable as it is a derivative of original recipe Spawn, who is in no way a stock character himself. The decision rendered on February 24th, 2004, gave Gaiman all the relief he sought. A, re- a rehearing and bank request was denied on March 31st, 2004. Now, we mentioned that Man of Miracles oh, before, yes. so let's, uh, <laughs> let's muddy the waters a little bit more with the Man of Miracles. Uh, now, we mentioned that Todd was planning on reintroducing Mike Moran slash Miracle Man to the world by adding him to Spawn's universe. And uh, if you remember, Todd said as much himself when he was discussing that right. Image Comics 12th anniversary book, or 10th anniversary, whatever. <laughs> uh, 10 plus well, 2, because uh, I think it yes. was, yeah. Now, well, as we mentioned, that didn't exactly happen. However, in Spawn issue 150, October 2005, uh, uh, cover date, a derivative of Miracle Man called the Man of Miracles was introduced. It wasn't long before that he had an action figure as well. Uh, if, you've, if you've seen the character or figure, it's basically Miracle Man with an emo haircut <laughs> and a stylish jacket. Wow. I mean, he even has the MM logo on his chest. <laughs> Wow. And the, uh, the packaging reads copyright Todd McFarlane Productions. Seriously. Uh, now, for completionist's sake, the Man of Miracles has since been revealed to be an ageless, genderless being who may or may not have been Jesus Christ. Uh, but his true form is the, quote, mother of existence. Well, certainly not derivative. No, no. But I think we've already spent too much time on the uh, Man of Miracles. So, so let's <laughs> let's clear up the issue of those rights. 
<laughs> uh, Marvel 1602. Gaiman was approached, and this is not actually the. This is a title of a of a story of a book. Yes. Of <laughs> We're not going back to Marvel in the 17th century. It might feel like we have been. It that far seems back in like time, we but... are jumping around a lot, but no, this is still in the 2000s. Uh, Gaiman was approached by newish Marvel editor in chief Joe Casada to pitch a project for the new look Harass Less Marvel, Harris Less Marvel comics. <laughs> the press release hit the internet October 24th, 2001. The project would become 1602, which is basically a Marvel superheroes living in the Elizabethan era. And if you ask Chris, a pretty decent cure for insomnia. But the Elizabethan era also is kind of a cure for insomnia. Well, not, not all of it, though. But, uh, <laughs> the Elizabethan era was chosen by Gaiman in the wake of the September 11th attacks. He didn't, have to write, he didn't want to have to write about planes, skyscrapers, bombs, or guns. Uh, this would be the first comic scripts that Neil wrote in half a decade. Critical reception was mixed, but for the most part polite, because Neil Gaiman. Bastions of Comics News, uh, Time Magazine, uh, of course, where everyone goes there for their <laughs> comics news. Yes. List, however, listed it as the worst comic of 2003. And there were issues of Marvel released that year. Right? So, I don't know, I gotta, <laughs> gotta wonder about that one. But since this is a Gaiman story, Marvel designated it to its own universe, Earth 311. So why are we even talking about this? Well, Marvel agreed to donate all profits from this project to Marvels and Miracles LLC, which was or is a game and foundation set up to clarify legal rights to Miracle Man. Neil says, I'm particularly pleased that Marvel has agreed to donate all their profits from this project to the Marvel's Enterprise, which I formed initially to help clarify the rights to the much-missed Miracle Man, so that ultimately old and new stories can again be put in the hands of Miracle Man's readers. He continues, once those rights have become clear, I plan to dedicate all of the profits which any Miracle Man publishing might generate, beyond those needed to make sure the original creators are being properly paid, to comics-related charitable organizations. What a guy, what a mm-hmm. guy. Uh, in Neil Gaiman's Prince of Stories, St. Martin's Press 2008 publication, Gaiman would address the Marvel Man rights Mishigas. He said... Actually, it looks as if the rights to Marvel Man were held by Mick Anglo all that time. It was always <laughs> copyrighted to him, and not to Len Miller and Des Skin admits he has no right. He had no rights to Marvel Man and did nothing to obtain them. <laughs> Mick Anglo was legally pursuing Eclipse all the years I was writing it, though they never mentioned this to me. They were working out a deal with him that then died when Eclipse died. Worth noting, Des Skin was quoted in Kimota from Tomorrow's Magazine, or the. Uh, is it a book? Probably, yeah, it's uh, a book, yeah. Uh, what he, that he did have a gentleman's agreement with Anglo, while at the same time denying that Anglo held any ownership of the character. <laughs> what a trustworthy guy from a guy named Isn't Jez. He... I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> He's trustworthy and humble. And very so we've learned a lot about him. Absolutely, yes. yeah. Now, in 2007, the rights were... This is where it gets even muddier because the rights were either sold to Emotive and Company, a company called Emotive and Company, or they were just acting as like a uh, an agent for McAnglo. Okay. Uh, Alan Moore recalls, somebody from Emotive called me up and said, explained that they had been working with a son of McAnglo's who was a musician, that this son had told them something of the Marvel Man story, that they decided to get involved because it sounded to them as if Mick Anglo was being cheated. So they told me a few things, such as the fact that L. Miller and Sons hadn't gone bankrupt. Whoa. Therefore, the Marvel Man rights should have never gone to the, the official receiver, and so on. Uh, Moore continues, if I'd known that, I would have never taken the job. And yes, if I can help, I'd 
Do feel bad. I must have been instrumental in taking these rights for them rightful owner, whoever that might be. Neil wrote of this, the, as of this writing, there is no resolution, and a motive and company representative simply stated, this is an ongoing situation that will probably still take years to fix. He continues, I know they bought the rights to Marvel Man from Mick Anglo for £4,000, which is approximately $5,585.56 in the U.S. dollars, and have been working hard to establish his ownership of the property. I've chatted with the guys who bought the Miracle Man, Marvel Man rights, and wished them well. When asked about Marvel Comics' involvement, Gaiman said, It remains to be seen. Emotive would contact all parties involved in Marvel Man, Miracle Man publications since the days of L. Miller and Son. Then, in May 2009, a curious listing pops up on eBay. In it, the seller was looking to sell issues 8 through 16 of the Eclipse run with a few autograph copies to boot. In the listing, there was a note that read, In speaking with Gary Leach, co-creator of Miracle Man, he tells me that there is yet another bizarre twist in this tale. Plans are afoot to completely revamp the character with a new name, a new costume, and new artwork, but keeping Alan Moore's words. Gary was not pleased to say the least. That means it is very unlikely that the original Miracle Man comics will ever be reprinted as originally intended. Everyone, please take note of that. Which, which, by the way, that's sort of what Mick Anglo did, right? When he first switched over from <laughs> Mar- to Marvel Man, he just kind of like whited out some words, yeah. But uh, now this this here is obviously baloney, but uh, and, and it feel and we're only including it here because of just how nebulous this entire rights issue had been yeah. up to this point. Because right, this was almost something believable because it was absolutely like, who knew what the real story was. Sure. And and we got to figure that the seller was probably adding this to maybe up the value of these, quote, never-to-be-reprinted oh, issues. Yeah, I think that had a lot to do with it, yeah. <laughs> now, the seller, uh, you know, you have a, the, 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 the stopped clock being right twice. He did say that an announcement would likely be made at that year's San Diego Comic-Con. And as luck would have it... Marvel announced during the 2009 San Diego Comic-Con that, in the, world's, in the words of then-editor-in-chief Joe Quesada... Marvel Man belongs to Marvel, citing that the company outright purchased the character from Mick Anglo. This was the culmination of an endeavor began in 2007 with more than a little help from Neil Gaiman, and a winning bid to Emotive, who were themselves cons- considering to reprint the whole Magilla under the title Master Man. <laughs> Oh, there, are, there are very, very uncreative-looking logos for Master Man. I, I mean, you, you are starting to scrape the bottom of the barrel for M words here. Yes, you know, what do you gotta, just what, so you don't have to change the costume. You know, you got, you got a lot more <laughs> after that. But uh, Marvel President Dan Buckley said, Mick is 94 years old, and I talked to him Wednesday for an hour and a half. Thanks for yeah, sharing thanks for that. Sharing nice. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Dan. Uh, he also noted that there were plans in the works for the character and his existing stories including the ones folks actually cared about, i.e. those pesky Alan Moore ones that we're not sure who owns or what. Uh, <laughs> but now we do know. Uh, reprints aren't all, though. Casada would say, I'm excited to see this character not just at Marvel, but the continued adventures of Marvel Man. This hinted that Neil Gaiman and Mark Buckingham would, be able to, would finally be able to finish their run from a quarter century earlier. Right? Wow. <laughs> Now, before moving on to the Marvel plans, let's let's finally wrap up Mick Anglo's yeah. story. Uh, we left him 
just as he created a, a Marvel Man there, or, or did whatever he did with it. Uh, <laughs> now in, uh, in 1966 is where we'll pick up, and this is when Anglo would work with John Spencer and company. John Spencer was a pseudonym for Samuel Assel, who launched this company in uh, 1947 and would pu- publish mostly pulp magazines. For them, he would edit the weekly TV Tornado series, and that was an odd anthology of comic strips and text stories based on television shows featuring Batman, Superman, The Man from Uncle, and also some King Features uh, properties like The Phantom. Uh, he would uh, also contribute stories for the Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and Green Hornet uh, sections. Uh, Anglo from there would move to Top Sellers. There's a publishing house that he'd done some miracles. Spaceman resells for a few years earlier. <laughs> if you remember, he, yeah. uh, <laughs> he he had the two-word Miracle Man. Right. Uh, he would also uh, package reprints of DC Comics-related strips for their Super DC Anthology series there. He'd also work sporadically in comics for the next decade and a half. Mick worked for a comic. He was the joke writer for comedian Tommy Cooper, a that kind of a comic, who famously <laughs> died of a heart attack on stage during the variety show Live from Her Majesty's. When the crowd thought it was part of his act, we'll say it was because Mick's joke was so funny. <laughs> and you, uh, that that video is available online. It's very strange. Oh, okay, maybe we'll. Do yeah, it's that. very uncomfortable watch. <laughs> it sounds like it might be. Maybe we won't. You'll just know that it's out there. Do a search. Yeah, do the obvious search easy. for Tommy Cooper. You'll find it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anglo retired in the early 1980s, and in 2009, at the age of 93, when the whole Marvel Man Sticky Wicked was worked out, Anglo would be interviewed in the Marvel Man Classic Primer June to 2010 cover. And he would also draw the cover. He passed away on Halloween 2011. Mm -hmm. Now, back to Marvel here. On uh, November 10th, 2009, Marvel Man became a registered trademark of Marvel Characters Incorporated. Serial number 777-88673. For comic books, magazines featured magazines featured printed stories in illustrated form and comic book stories and artwork, posters, printed periodicals in the field of comic book stories and artwork, printed visuals in the nature of comic book stories and artwork. In 2010, Marvel began re-releasing uh, a series of hardcovers featuring the early adventures of Marvel Man. And yes, they used the word Marvel Man in the, on the cover and in the book. Uh, whether this was due with, with their being cool with it or just not wanting to put in the time and effort to edit every single page yeah. of the story, we don't know. Maybe there's a little bit of Probably a little, a little from each side, yeah. <laughs> Now, Marvel Man Classic Volume 1 was released August 25th, 2010, and would collect Marvel Man issues 25 through 34, and that included the a feared-to-be-lost issue that was number 26. Now, again, these are the L. Miller and Son stories, not the Alan Moore ones, which is why so many uh, there are so many strange and confused reviews <laughs> yep. on Amazon.com. <laughs> uh, Marvel Man Classic Volume 2 was released February 23rd, 2011, and collects Marvel Man 35 through 44. Marvel Man Classic Volume 3 was released September 14th, 2011, and collects Marvel Man 45 through 54. Marvel Man Family's Finest was released March 16th, 2011, and collects Marvel Man Family 1 through 6. Young Marvel Man Classics Volume 1 was released May 25, 2011, collecting Young Marvel Man 25 through 34. And Young Marvel Man Classics Volume 2 was released January 18th, 2012, collecting Young Marvel Man 35 through 44. So you're probably wondering, what about those Marvel Man stories we actually care about? Yeah, not those old, uh, (laughs) you know... Bummy ones. Uh, on September 5th, 2012, Miracle Man became a registered trademark of Marvel Characters Incorporated, serial number 8572092. For comic books, magazines featuring printed stories in illustrated form, 
and comic book stories and artwork, printed periodicals in the field of comic book stories and artwork. They also registered serial number 85720895 for action figures and accessories, therefore, collectible toy figures, toy action figures and accessories, therefore, toy model hobby craft kits, which was abandoned November 19, 2015. So it's unlikely we're going to see any <laughs> Miracle Man toys or hobby craft kits in the future. Dang it, I, I was looking for that hobby craft kit. <laughs> uh, now, back to those stories we all care about. Uh, Alan Moore chose not to be credited for the Marvel reprints of his Marvel Man, Miracle Man work and refused to take in any of the profits. Moore says, there, there was at a time I thought, yes, I did a lot for the, of work on it, and it would be nice if, I don't know, Leia and Amber, those are Moore's daughters, would have profit from it in the future. But by the time Marvel Comics were involved, I just thought, no, let it go. Give all the money to Anglo. <laughs> he received a contract. Which is sort of his thing, isn't it? This wasn't Isn't no. it? Yeah. <laughs> now, he would receive a contract from Marvel which stated he could take his name off the strip if Marvel would make any alterations to the artwork. Moore said, no, just remove it regardless. He says, I got back and said, no, <laughs> this is irrespective of whether Marvel makes any changes to the artwork. Worth noting, Moore is still just as confused about the rights as, well, even we still are. He says, after 25, 35 years of this stuff, I'm no closer to knowing anything. And everything that comes up just seems to make the matter more complicated, more murky. So we can all uh, feel good about ourselves for being in the same boat as I Really, yeah. <laughs> but no one knows, so don't, don't, feel like, don't feel like something's being hidden from you, folks. Yeah, you, it didn't go over our heads. It went over all of them. <laughs> now, for these Marvel reprints, Moore was only credited as the original writer. His name is left off completely. That's right. Uh, talk a little bit about Grant Morrison here. He did the all-new Miracle Annual Number 1. That was February 2015 cover date. As the Warrior run of Marvel Man came to a close, Des Skin mentioned receiving a pitch from then-unknown Glaswegian fella named Grant Morrison. It was a short story starring Kid Miracle Man chatting up a priest before his London rampage. Grant would say in a 2014 call with Joe Quesada, I'm sure I have the script somewhere. Maybe I'll dig it up and just post it online for the fans just for the fun of it. Quesada implored him not to and offered to publish it. Grant agreed so long as Quesada provided the art himself. The decent, though short, story, it was meant to be a six-pager in Warrior, after all. Uh, it's called October Incident 1966 and appeared in All New Miracle Man Annual Number 1 and cost $4.99. This marked the first new, and that is to say not already published, uh, Miracle Man story in about 15 years. There was also a short Miracle Man family story included, written by Peter Milligan with art by Mike Allred. Now into the future. Uh, before we get to the future, we need to uh, let's talk about the sales figures here. Uh, because I, this is a story that I think I've kind of romanticized in my head yeah. to being something that everybody should care about. And uh, we're about to find out that not everybody does. Yeah. Uh, we're going to use the Marvel Miracle Man sales figures from Comic Cron. And you got to remember, every issue of this is $5. Uh, January 2014, Miracle Man number one. It was the 23rd best selling comic of the month and sold. 52,313 copies. Get a pretty sizable dip January uh, that same month, January 2014, Miracle Man number 2, another $5 down, and that is 44th for the month 
at 36,927 copies. Which actually is somewhat normal attrition in comics. Though. Sure. Let's, sure. Be, let's be real. They usually have for the first one. <laughs> we're uh, not done yet. No, we're not done. <laughs> uh, February 14th, Miracle Man number three. That was position 81st of the month. Sold 25,970 copies. And March 14th, Miracle Man number four, 96th of the month. Not too bad of a dip here, though. 23,557 copies. We skip a month and go to May 2014. Miracle Man number five was the 107th best selling comic of the month with 23,399 copies. Same month, Miracle Man number six. Uh, this is the 117th best selling book of the month with 20,598 copies. Now you might think it's going to level out here. June 2014, <laughs> Miracle Man number seven. It's only slipped one position, 118th of the month, and it sold 19,123 copies. But then the following month in July, Miracle Man number eight is at 163 position on the charts, selling 17,654 copies. And uh, August 2014, number nine, came out with the, as the 136th highest-selling book of the month. 16,466 copies sold or shipped or whatever. Right. Uh, September 2014, Miracle Man number 10, 153rd best-selling book of the month, uh, 15,409 copies. And uh, two of them for October 2014, where they have shipped two issues this month, I guess, huh? Yeah. Uh, Okay, Miracle Man number 11 was 181st position on the charts, uh, shipped 14,824 copies, and number 12 was 183 on the chart, uh, 14,634 copies. November, uh, Miracle Man 13 came out, 151st bestseller of the month, 14,155 copies. We get uh, a little bit of a jump here. December 2014, we get the all-new Miracle Man Annual. This is the 118th bestselling book of the month, but does uh, sell quite a bit more, uh, 21,644 copies. So uh, the first all-new story uh, drew a little bit of interest. Right, the new content drew some people in. Uh, but then, <laughs> in January 2015, Miracle Man number 14 was at one position 149, and it uh, shipped 14,024 copies. Basically, went right back down to where it yep. was in November, February uh, 2015. Miracle Man number 15 was at position 150, shipping 14,548 copies. And March of that year, number 16 was 159. The position of 159, shipping 13,595 copies. Now look at that February book. This is Miracle Man 15, right? That's the book that you can't find under $100 for the original. Wow. You know, this is the eclipse. This is the rampage of Kid Miracle Man. Oh, okay. Who, uh, I, where you you can't find this book, and it only sold 14,000 copies. Yeah. It, it just doesn't seem... Right. I think I think people. Yeah. Anyway, we'll talk about reasons. Yeah, possibly we'll get to that. There, yeah. <laughs> now uh, we got two issues in September of uh, 2015, so we're jumping ahead. The, we're skipping the summer, and we are relaunching. This is not Miracle Man number 17. This is Miracle Man by Gaiman and Buckingham number one. This was uh, the 69th for the month, uh, 69th uh, highest seller for the month with 27,269 copies. September again, Miracle Man by Gaiman and Buckingham number two. This is the 98th position for the month, and we have 22,143 copies. In October 2015, Miracle Man by Gaiman and Buckingham number three was at position 118 on the chart, shipping 19,375 copies. And in November of that year, the number, issue number four was at position 134, shipping 16,825 copies. 
December 2015. Miracle Man by Gaiman and Buckingham, number five. Position 161 on the chart, selling or shipping 15,427 copies. Then the final issue of this arc, January 2016, Miracle Man by Gaiman and Buckingham, number six. 153 for the month, 14,200 copies. Wow. That is quite, Mm -hmm. quite a dip from its beginnings. Uh, Miracle Man by Gaiman and Buckingham, The Silver Age. Uh, the first three issues of the series, which would have included the first all-new chapter and hopefully leading to Gaiman's proposed and third and final book, The Dark Age, were solicited, but never released. Hmm. Axel Alonso, then Marvel Editor-in-Chief, claimed that they were waiting to resolicit so they have a seamless release from reprint to original material. <laughs> Uh, which hasn't, I don't think that's happened. I gotta be honest with you. It but, hasn't. Uh, <laughs> and so we wait. And luckily, Miracle Man fans have uh, gotten really good at that. Well, you know, I'll tell you, because you, you find out that the story might actually be continued two decades down the line. You know what I mean? <laughs> it could be 2030. It, it could be, you know what I mean? You, you, you could be uh, asking your grandkids to read it to you while your, your eyes have failed. You'll be reading the next <laughs> issue of the gaming thing. Um, just a little bit of conjecture about this. Obviously, Chris is. You know, you're heavily into it. You've collected the series hmm. already. Uh, yes. I, I've seen, I'd say, the pertinent scenes. Sure, we'll leave it at that. You know what? You know what they are, most likely. <laughs> and I've, I've seen. You know, I know what it looks like, and I know about it. But I've definitely never sat and read it. But there, there were two problems with the Marvel reprint. Uh, the, the number one thing in my mind was price. Yes, it was flat out too much money for reprints. It you was. know, this, this is stuff that was. Done and though expensive and hard to get, available. You know, yeah, they, it, they treated it like a boutique. They treated and it really. I didn't mean, do it any favors. It, they should not have priced it higher than their regular comics, which they did. No. It was a buck higher than Spider Man mm-hmm. and whatever else. And it, there was no need for it. You know, this is so this should have been a layup. Now I think, I think that if we were to tell more of Marvel story that we don't know, I think that possibly the financial arrangements made. <laughs> were Possibly. such that they dictated the necessity for that. <laughs> uh, the other problem, though, Chris, and you might disagree with this, is uh, dipping back into the originals, reprinting all the original stuff first. Uh, that was, yeah, because I think that made people gun-shy. Um, because, I mean, those, I, I'm, I'm looking at uh, Miracle Man Classic Volume 1 on my shelf here. Yeah. And, I mean, it's got a cover price of thirty four ninety nine US. So you spend, on Amazon, sight unseen... $35 expecting right. the first six issues of Alan Moore's run, and you get this stuff from the 50s. It's like, and, and, or the and 40s even. And it's it's, it's going to turn a lot of people off because that's not... Of course. You know, that's it's the kind of thing, it's the kind of thing a completionist, a completist would want to have. Yes. Uh, but people interested in the, you know, the saucy stories, as I think would be true for most people, you know, I mean... We'll, we're a couple of people that can actually, we can have a good time with some Silver Age stuff, but sure. I definitely don't think that that's, you know, indicative of, of most people. So no, certainly they, not. They should have gone right to the Alan Moore and, back, and backfilled the rest of it, you know what I mean? Over sure, time. or even just did it, did it digital or whatever they do to save money on these stories that are niche. Something, I mean, what, what I would have done, because I would have figured... Throw them in a digest. Exactly, that's how I would have done something yeah. like that, or I would have even done like a box set, because I, I know there are people... That do sure. want to have it, you know what I mean? Absolutely. So I would have made it's kind of an, an addition for them that would have done it all one shot. 
and you might have to pay 50, 70, no, actually knowing Marvel, you'd pay 75, 100 bucks, but you'd have it. You, you know what I mean? You, you would have yeah. all of the all of the pre-stuff. Uh, so uh, You'd have the boutique treatment with the boutique price, so it's, it's, it would make sense. Everybody wins, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. So that that's that, those are the two things I think that they, they flubbed on. It should have been cheaper, uh, mm-hmm. except for the new, you know, the new issues should be, well, I think they should have priced them cheaper than new issues, and then when the new issues come out, you can price those according to you know sure the demand new comics and to the demand sure. but uh and i think they should have started reprinting their earlier stuff but uh did you get all those marvel reprints i mean you have the eclipse i have all of them you have every I've, version I've, i bought all of them because i wanted to support them and uh and i'm burned because i'm still waiting on the silver age. yeah unfortunately uh, it takes more than a one it does doesn't it but uh <laughs> Um, I, I definitely agree with you that they, they did start off on the wrong foot. Um, they should have, and, and this is me, just comic fan idiot here, saying they should have done something more to get Alan's name on it. Yeah. Because I'm sure he's a reasonable guy where if it would have been like, you know what, if you can put your name, if you can co-sign this, this will help the Anglo family more. Absolutely. You know, that's exactly you what know? I was just thinking. It's, yeah. So here you go. You know, we can put the original writer on it and be all, you know, Marvel edgy, but, uh, or, or you can, you know, sign and we can make sure Anglo is taken care of because these books will sell more. Absolutely. Um, that's it, definitely, I mean, his name would have pushed, it might have doubled the order. Could you, ma- yeah, could you imagine Alan Moore writing for Marvel again? Oh, I mean, yeah. that's, I mean, he's, it, it's unthinkable. Yeah. And uh, and also they should have, you know, we talk about how they should have priced it similar to the current stuff, but they, the thing of it is, there's this dissonance here because they priced it so far above the regular stuff, but they treated it like the normal stuff. So yeah. they had Skate 800 variant. We had stupid Scotty Young baby covers. I know. For Miracle Man. I know. That, I... that treats it like it's disposable garbage to me, where this should have been something more uh, i hate the word epic but it should have been more epic there well, should have been you know you should have heard the trumpets when this book came out you know it's it's two ways to look at it. i definitely i know what you mean by having giving it the typical you know flashy uh yeah. jack the numbers blank cover. i mean yeah, th- th- like... th- this is why the attrition between issues one and two are often half is sure. because of those variants you know people trying to get all those things uh but you know also as reprints though Treat them like reprints, you know what I mean? Uh, maybe mm-hmm. sell them for four bucks, even three bucks a piece or whatever. Sure. And the trumpet would be in the in the marketing and promotion of it, I would think. But uh, whatever. I think they. I think another thing they could have done, which it, it's a, like a plus and a minus for like harder core comic fans and collectors, but uh, these were originally in Warrior magazine, so. The art doesn't really match up to a standard comic trim. Right. So maybe you publish those first few in a bigger, a bigger that would have been cool. and, and the a, tablet in the thing. A5 format, right? That sure. Would that sure. Uh, yeah, that would have been cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. And I think it would have drawn more attention to it. It would have justified a higher price point. It might have cost more to do too, but uh, it, I think it would have. Uh, it would have made it stand apart from everything else on the shelf a little bit more than here's the here's the Miracle Man as a hot dog. Here's Miracle Man as a dog. Here's Miracle Man as a baby. Right, right, so right. Something yeah. more prestigious. And, and and maybe something to explain why this is important. You know, the, the, yes. what we're looking at with, with, with Marvel Man uh, under Alan Moore is the beginning of something that now we get way too much of. But at least it was the beginnings <laughs> of it. Deconstruction, the yes. deconstructing of a superhero. And that really was... The first time it was done in a serious way, you know, that it wasn't sure. a Murray Bolton off goofy, yeah. goof, you know what I mean? 
so anyway, all that being said, that stuff is still out there. Let me tell you, folks, I've seen it in piles at the old uh, LCS, so you can go get yourself some of those uh, hardbacks <laughs> or, or whatever. Or probably, I guess they're all digital now, right? All the ones that Marvel I, put out. I don't know. They might be. I never, I never thought to check, but maybe I'll give it a look <laughs> now. Maybe that's my chance to give it a look myself. But there if you... Go. you out there in listener land And I, I want to take a minute to thank you Chris For putting this together <laughs> It took you a long time And I know a lot of times Over a year It was yeah. really racking your brain Trying to get get into the uh, legalese of it And I think you did as good a job As anyone could possibly <laughs> hope you. to do So uh, if you want to heap praise on Chris Or if you want to tell us all about Your memories of Marvel Man Or ask us what the hell we were talking about You can write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com Find us on Facebook at facebook.com Slash cosmic t-mail history uh, We're also on Tumblr Cosmic t-mail history dot tumblr.com You can find uh, us on Twitter at cosmic t-mail And I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie I'm at Ace Comics See our weekly writings at weirdsciencedccomics.com And see Chris's daily writings on his personal blog Chris is on infiniteearths.com Where... Gonna, you know, spoil it for the people. As of today's <laughs> recording, mm-hmm. you've done 800 consecutive days without missing 800. one. And of course, the special, most special book that we've been talking about for years now is uh, was Lady Cup number one. Lady first, Cup, first issue <laughs> the first special. Issue special yep. So, uh, which you got recently. So, yeah, they, you got to check it out. There's a different DC comic every single day for 800 good days and going, folks. Uh, you got a got a full review, got pictures, got some great insight and commentary. Plus, he's got ads. Plus, he does the backups, even if they suck. So, I mean, this is because they usually do. It's they usually do. <laughs> even today, this is actually a truism throughout all of comics. So, uh, you know, it's like I say, it's the next best thing to reading the actual comic. Go check it out. Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com. You can also check out the show site, weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, where we throw our show notes, uh, added tidbits, and all sorts of good stuff here. I We recently broke up the Cosmic Treadmill archives uh, over four pages instead of the one page that usually refuses to load because there's so much on it. Right. So <laughs> we've got the first 25, then the first you know, 25 through 50 or whatever. It's, it, it's easier to see them. You'll than figure it out, I think. Yeah, it's not so bad. <laughs> Uh, you can find us on YouTube by searching YouTube for Weird Comics History if you leave the spaces out. That's right. And that's uh, sometimes if you like to listen to podcasts that way. I know I do that at work. That's the way you can do it also. But uh, mm-hmm. I think that's all we got from this week. Chris, got anything else for him? I think that'll do it. <laughs> well, <laughs> until next time, my miraculous listeners, I want you to keep it weird historically. I can't keep up with what's been going down I think my heart must just be slowing down